This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today, I'm happy to bring you this episode with Dr. Ryan Haupt. Ryan is a podcaster on the show Science, sort of, and a frequent guest host on the comic book podcast iFanboy. iFanboy was one of the very first podcasts I ever listened to, and after a couple of random interactions on Twitter, Ryan and I were able to connect and talk back at the beginning of February. This conversation runs the gamut. We talk about Ryan's experience growing up in the church in West Virginia, about discovering science in college, and the particular grief that can come from a philosophical or faith shift. We also, of course, talk about comics. It's a great conversation, and I'm glad I get to share it with you today. Links to Ryan's shows are in the show notes. One note, we did have several production difficulties during this recording session because of a setting that kept forcing my computer to shut down. Thankfully, Ryan had a backup because he's a professional, and he had a backup of both of our tracks, and we were able to continue. My additional thanks are extended to Liz Nordenholt of Podcast Audio for her work in editing this episode in particular. Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post. There's several ways you can support my work. The most direct way is to become a patron and or paid subscriber of my Substack, the Post-Evangelical Post. You can subscribe at 4 6 or $8 a month and you'll get ad-free podcast feeds as well as Discord access and subscriber-exclusive writing. There's also free tiers where you'll get my writing, show notes, etc. Just none of the perks I mentioned above. You can find out more about that at postevangelicalpost.com. If you want to make a one-time donation or payment, you can do so via Venmo at postevpost. You can also follow the link in my show notes to buy books from my bookshop store at bookshop.org. Finally, you can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and just let others know about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain and on Instagram at and TikTok at BRChastain underscore. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me as my guest today, Dr. Ryan Haupt. Ryan is the host of the podcast Science, sort of, as well as a frequent guest host on one of my favorite podcasts, iFanboy. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Blake. I'm terrified to be here. <laughs> well, I hope I can put you uh, put you at ease, though, to be honest, I would be equally sort of terrified uh, to be on the show that you co-host a lot. Uh, it's actually, I think, probably one of the first podcasts I listen to regularly, which is iFanboy. I, I told you this when we were connecting uh, over email, but it was the first podcast that I listened to when I had a, like a 90-minute commute and couldn't afford comic books. 
it was how I kept up with like the storylines. I think there are a surprising number books. of people that use iFanboy for that very service. And um, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Some of my earliest podcast memories, I remember discovering podcasts because I was working on a research paper for a college class that I was in. And I, I ended up looking up some nature article, nature being one of the, you know, world preeminent science journals. And I noticed that they were like, oh, and check out our podcast with the authors of this article. And I was like, oh, well, if I can just listen to a 20 minute audio thing instead of having to read this really dense piece of scientific writing, like maybe that'll work. Mm-hmm. And then so I started listening to the nature podcast. I was like, oh, this is great. And so I started looking for other science podcasts and then, you know, subscribed to a bunch of science podcasts. And then I started looking like up comedians that I liked and only a few. And believe it or not, there was a time when not every comedian in the world had a podcast. <laughs> I think I, I started listening to Greg Proof's podcast and that was about it. And then and then I was like, well, I like, com- you know, I like comic books, too. And I looked for I d- subscribed to a couple of comic book podcasts and I fanboy remains the one that I still listen to and now contribute to to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And we will we'll definitely uh, get to that because we'll I, I think there's a lot to talk about in regards to comics and more of the sort of topic of, of this show. But yeah, there that is really fascinating to that that you made that transition and sort of discovered it and then became a part of the show later on. So I'll definitely want to hear that. But before we get to that part of your story, <laughs> hopefully we uh, it won't be too terrifying to talk about these things. But I'd love to hear a little bit about where we like to start on this show, which is at the start of your story, where uh, how you grew up and what your sort of initial experiences with religion were like. Yeah, sure. And uh, before I dive into my own story, I just want to I want to commend you and all of your listeners and guests that you have on the show, because like when I say I terrified, I'm half joking, but it is confronting uh, purposefully so to talk about these things publicly. And it's it's I think it's something that a lot of us keep private because of of the scars or the fear or the the potential bridges still left to be burned that haven't quite fully fallen apart yet um Mm -hmm. so so i don't i don't have these discussions lightly even if i tend to be the kind of person that is throwing jokes and trying to make blake laugh because that's how i um stay engaged uh (laughs) yeah but but religion for me goes back you know to some of my earliest memories uh my parents my dad was raised German Lutheran in Cincinnati, which we were just talking about before we started the show. And my mom was raised German Irish Catholic. And when they got engaged and then married, they didn't, you know, didn't necessarily want to continue in either of those specific faith traditions, but did want to continue with a Christian church. And they had a really uh, hard time negotiating between the in-laws for how they were going to handle their marriage because my dad was the first to get married out of his three brothers and my mom was the oldest uh, daughter and the first to get married on that side. And when my grandparents were growing up, my dad's side in particular, not only were they only allowed to date other German Lutherans, they were only allowed to date other Missouri Senate German Lutherans. They couldn't even leave the conference that they were in. Um, Yeah. Really strict protocols for, for dating and finding a, a partner. And they got lucky that they found each other and had a, you know, long and happy marriage. And then obviously my, my grandparents on my mom's sides were both Catholic too, and I, I, I have not talked with them as specifically about whether that was a requirement or just happened to work out, but they did meet at a Catholic university in Nebraska. Creighton, I think, is a Catholic university. So, you know, and I think my, my other grandparents also went to a Lutheran college, so they, well, what are the odds, you know, <laughs> that you'd meet somebody at the college you went to that happened to also match with the, the requirements for who you were allowed to date? Um, and, I, you know, I, I've only heard the stories because I wasn't there for all of this, but it, I guess... They they had to negotiate with the the two sets of parents, and they basically ended up having to have both a 
Lutheran minister or reverend and a Catholic priest officiate the wedding because they, they not, neither side was willing to let the other one uh, fully you know take over. And my my maternal grandmother in particular apparently wanted the priest to do a full mass. Uh, you know, full Catholic mass, old school Catholic wedding style. And even the priest yeah. was like, listen, no, nobody wants that. I don't want to do that. The audience doesn't want to do that. The couple doesn't want to do that. You're the only person who wants the full mass. Like, just come to church on another day when we're already doing it. So Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so it was really like an interfaith wedding. Um, yeah, in a way, which is... Which is yeah. Uh, but but even still, I think pretty early on, my parents knew that they, they felt both the... Both the... the, the Traditions they've been brought up into were a little strict for their liking. So I think when they started going to church as a young married couple, they were looking for, you know, this was the mid 80s. So they were looking into the the sort of, I think, burgeoning non-denominational scene. And that was where they ended up by the time I was born. And I was uh, baptized, you know, as an infant at the it was actually it was the first baby baptized at the church's new facility that they were going to. And then I remember we ended up moving a lot because of my dad's job. Right after I was born, he decided to uh, take a break from the Air Force and go back to school to become a, a physician. So we moved right after I was born. And so a lot of my early memories are moving to a new place and then the process of finding a church once we arrived in that new place. And literally, like, I don't know where my parents even, I don't know where my dad in particular would get like this list of churches to go to, you know, before Yelp. I don't know if churches are on Yelp, but it was before search engines. <laughs> and right. so he would just have this list of churches and we every, you know, for, for the first couple of weeks, uh, any, living anywhere new, we were just going to church to church, auditioning them out, seeing which one we liked and kind of balancing, you know, there. And a lot of these were non-denominational churches. You know, there were a fair number of like more loose Presbyterian Methodist type stuff. We, you know, we never went to any of the more stricter Protestant faiths in, in my memory and we were never hitting up like a Baptist place. But I, I do remember that process of just like, we'd go try out this new church. It was, it was everything from like, were the people wearing a version of their Sunday best that was compatible with our version of Sunday best? You know, was it like a little bit more than a, than a jeans and t-shirt vibe was the, the, the message that given the sermon, you know, uh, compatible with what my parents believed was the music fun and engaging and up to par. did the service, you know, not take too long, which was a legitimate concern because my mom has diabetes. And so I was like, I remember one time we were, <laughs> we were at a service <laughs> at a, a church we didn't typically attend. And the pastor was, was complaining that like everyone, you know, uh, everyone cheers when the baseball game goes into extra inning, but everyone groans and the pastor goes over his a lot of time. And my mom just kind of under her breast was like, yeah, cause you can get a hot dog. Like you can't, like, it was, like <laughs> I was like, that's a really good point. Like if they just had, better, you know, if it was more than just like a piece of bread and a little sip of grape juice, then maybe, maybe we could stay longer. But, yeah. Like, church needs concessions. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So those are, you know, those are, those are my earliest memories in the church. It was always something that was important to the family. It was always something we got dressed up for and went out on Sunday. You know, we, we didn't have a ton of money when I was growing up. So the Sunday lunch after church was usually one of the few times we were going out to eat for a meal during the week. And sometimes that was even like Taco Bell. Like it wasn't necessarily a fancy thing. Like if we got to go to a Bob Evans, that was a treat. So that was sort of how things began. And so was that because your dad moved, was that all moved? Uh, and the family moved along with him to whatever place he had to go. Were you looking, do you think they were looking at church churches also because it was sort of a way to get a built in community? I mean, a lot of, a lot of times that's what a church is, can do, do well is provide you with a sort of ready-made community of people. Was that something that was part of what motivated them to find churches or was it the, the need to like make sure that they were in church on Sunday? I, I've never really talked to them about that aspect of things, 
I obviously the sense of community is nice and, and you know, the churches by the time I was old enough to start remembering things, you know, I do remember having good communities. I remember one of the, so we went from just people have the logistics in their head. We went from the Florida panhandle to Nashville, Tennessee to Cincinnati, Ohio to Charleston, West Virginia. So that was the, mm. the path. So we kind of went from the Gulf coast to the buckle of the Bible belt to Cincinnati to uh, Appalachia. And I think my parents definitely did get a sense of community out of it. My dad was often a, a deacon. I remember a few times growing up. So active in church leadership from time to time. My mom, I remember helping out with the, the costuming. She's, a, she's an excellent seamstress and quilter, helping out with the costuming for some of the, the shows that, that one of the churches we went to in Cincinnati would put on every year. And I would participate, you know, I, little baby thespian would participate in those programs. I truly, you know, I truly think having a, a, a spiritual home was really important for my dad. And I get the sense that for my mom, it was more having a place to raise me and my sister to have a you know, strong moral compass and, and set of ethics. And it was sort of thinking about us more than she was thinking about her own spiritual fulfillment. If I, but I, I, you know, I don't want to misrepresent her. So um, yeah, yeah, sure. 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 Yeah. And I mean, this is all like retrospective. These are hindsight type questions, right? Yeah. Um, maybe, definitely not something that you, you were necessarily able to parse out in the moment as a as a child were you and your sister involved in like either vacation bible school or later in middle school and high school did you get plugged into like youth group and yeah so so the (laughs) definitely did vacation bible school a couple of times the main thing Mm -hmm. i remember about it is making bricks and being told that this was how the the hebrews in egypt had to make the bricks for the pyramid (laughs) (laughs) it's just like this is straw and mud i see pictures (laughs) of the pyramids i don't like there's not like pieces of straw sticking out of (laughs) them i feel like that's i feel like that's something from like like charlton heston's 10 commandments or something yeah so i remember (laughs) i remember that's the main thing i remember about vacation bible school was making mud bricks and i remember a few times my mom took my sister. I have a, one younger sister who's a, a just under three years younger than me. I remember one time she took us to like one of the harvest festivals that was supposed to be the alternative to trick or treat and and mm-hmm. celebrating you know the devil's holiday all, all Hallows <laughs> Eve. I remember it was fun. Like there was a car. I think there was a corn maze. Like it was bobbing for apples. I remember having a fine time at it. But I also remember being like. This is super lame. I hope we still get to go trick or treat. <laughs> trick or treating is awesome, and my parents were cool about that. So like. The church we ended up at in when we were living in Charleston was a church out in Cross Lanes, uh, and it was an evangelical Presbyterian church. And I won't I won't name names because I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but it would not be hard to find if you know the region and know that specific sub denomination. And th- that's where that's where I basically went from you know elementary school up through most of high school. I sort of stopped going partway through high school, which is a different part of the story. And it was a, you know, in hindsight, it was an extremely conservative evangelical church to the point where it was kind of a scandal that my sister and I went to public school and didn't go, weren't either homeschooled or go to the private Christian school that was in that same community. And my parents always had the attitude of just like, look, you know, like the, the, even though the Bible says be not of the world, like our kids still have to live in this world. And their their attitude was always like, we've raised our kids to be strong enough in in themselves and their faith that they can exist in a place that's not explicitly Christian and still be exemplars for what we all believe in. So we're fine sending them to the public school that's, you know, a really well-regarded, well-renowned public school. So I remember that being like one of the earliest issues where my parents pushed back against some of the more conservative leanings of this particular church. We we still kept going, but I just, I, I started seeing the cracks, you know, at that point. And that was interesting and then i did for a time get involved in their youth group and that was when things started to really take a turn for me personally 
Yeah, if you don't, can we just start to talk about that, or should we, is there anything yeah, else? Yeah, I just think it was a really, like, the, the youth group, well, okay, so, I remember in particular, there was a part, there was a, a, a moment, you know, when we were all, like, hitting puberty, that the Sunday school was suddenly split, male and female, and I, we had to take this course, my dad, and then, and then my dad started coming to Sunday school with me, as did all the other dads, and we had to take this course called, like, Growing Into Christian Manhood, or something like that, and I have since, I, I'm sure I ripped in half or burned or tossed the, the book that we were given. It was from the mid 80s. And it was not even like a properly bound book. It was one of those books bound like a college reader with the kind of plastic um, swirly yeah, cue thing. Sure. And it was, it was, but it was thick. And it was like, it was just a tirade of nonsense. And even as a teenager, I was just like, this is so outlandishly stupid. Because it would say, <laughs> I mean, because it would say things like, like, as a as a proper young Christian man, you shouldn't wear shirts with floral prints on them. And I was like, but I have a Hawaiian shirt and I like it and it's fine. Like, that makes no sense. It literally said, like, it would say things like, you shouldn't wear pants that don't have back pockets because that's feminine. You shouldn't listen to rock music. Obviously, they, they could not, you know, this church had zero tolerance for secular entertainment in terms of music or movies or comic books, which were brought up often at the, the pulpit as being a source of sin and temptation. Which we can really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in the 80s and 90s. And this, was, this for... would have been, er, this would have been late 90s, early aughts is where they okay, were okay. So Harry Potter I mean, was becoming the, the... Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe they saw some, like... Spawn, I think, <laughs> or spun like yeah. image, image like Gen thirteen type. I think, yeah, I think some of that more <laughs> more alluring to teenage boys type comics that Wildstorm and Image were putting out for a while were probably what set them off, or or the Jim Lee X Men. You know those those shower scenes. The steam is perfectly placed, but not so perfectly placed that it isn't isn't quite suggestive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so. So you know there this 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 tome of growing into Christian manhood, like it even said that you can't uh, listen to rock music because, and I, again, I wish I still, I wish I'd kept this book. I've looked for it online. I've looked for it on eBay. I cannot find a copy, but it said you shouldn't listen to rock music because rock music, the beats and rhythms used in rock musics are the same as those used in African, like witch dances, which in addition to being like, probably not true is also pretty racist. And I remember, and I remember like both me and my dad, taking issue with this book and using it as an opportunity to ask tough questions that I think the leaders of the Sunday school and in this church in particular, were not used to being confronted with. And so like, I remember pointing out there's a song that we would often sing during the singing part of church called uh, King of Kings and Lords of Lords, um, King of Kings and Lords of Lords, glory, hallelujah. And that's based off of a Jewish song. And so I was like, well, so if, I'm not supposed to listen to rock music because it's based off of like African witch drum beats. Like, why is it okay for us to use like song, you know, the exact like tune from a different religions song. And they obviously didn't have an answer to that. And, you know, there was just, I started, that was around when I started noticing that there were within the teachings of the church, a lot of coded and not so coded like political messages. And this was during the Clinton years. And obviously the evangelical church was no fan of Clinton and remains not a fan to this day. And and so like, you know, there was just, I started noticing of like, Oh, there, this, this church really wants to not just like control what I do, but they really want to control what I think. And that was, you know, something that as a 
I think I was always a strong-willed kid, and then I think growing into my teenage and adolescent years, that only got worse. <laughs> and so that was where I think a lot of the cracks <laughs> in my relationship with this particular church started to emerge. But I, I, I did truly believe, so that wasn't like that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that I didn't believe. The issue was that I felt like this church was focusing on all this stuff that like wasn't relevant to ever having a relationship with Christ. It was just like, why are we like, who cares if I read a book about Harry Potter? Like it's, you know, and my, and I remember my mom knew that I'd read those books. And so like when they, when somebody went on a, t- a tirade of saying, they didn't just say, you know, I think that Harry Potter is dangerous and should be avoided. They said like, we as a church need to take a stand against Harry Potter. And I remember my mom at the, after church lunch, you know, asking me like, you've read those books. What's the deal? And I was like, they're books about like how friendship helps you defeat evil. Like, it's really like, they're not, you know, um, like, like it's, it's not a bad message at all. And I know in the, in the light of history and thanks to JK Rowling, not being able to keep quiet about some of her less, less good opinions, the, the, those books themselves are tainted now, but yeah, we, we don't know who wrote Harry Potter. As, yeah, it's been lost some of my time. friends like. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard that joke. That is a good joke. Um, so she, you know, I remember her asking me. She's like, "What's the big deal?" And I was like, "There's not. Like, I don't know why they're making such a like. I don't know why they're making such a fuss about it. Like, it hardly seems the most pressing issue." And it was also a church that was super into missionary work in ways that I've never been comfortable with. I always was like, "Why is it okay to go to other places and tell people they're wrong? Like, that doesn't seem yeah, doesn't seem yeah, so appropriate." It- a lot of support of international missions and things like that. Exactly. And I remember, and it was always like, it was always, it was always talked about with such a reverence of just like, this man felt so compelled to serve God that he took his entire family to a place where you can get killed for being a Christian. I was like, eh, maybe you should have left the family home. Like that kind of seems like a not cool thing to do to your kids. You know, like why, like why, <laughs> why are they tagging along? Yeah. Like, if you, if you need to, I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's an argument to be made that that's like one of the reasons the Catholic church in, enforces celibacy amongst their priesthood is because like being a priest at the time was a dangerous thing. And like, so you shouldn't have a family because it was a liability like a superhero in the comic books. I'll just keep throwing in a little comic book. As we, <laughs> as we talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember never being super comfortable with that, especially because like this is, you know, this is Southern West Virginia. This is the Canal Valley. Like there are a lot of people because they would always the retort was always, well, they go and they help, you know, they go and they build a school, they go and they dig a well. So it's not just preaching the gospel like they're helping these communities. And I was like, there's a lot of people who don't have good, clean water to drink here. Like, why? Why you got to go somewhere else? Like, stay home, get the work done here first. You know, if there's I believe there's something about removing the the log from your own eye before taking the speck out of someone else's. So I just didn't understand the it it seemed as a person who's always been a performer i i enjoy performance i enjoy both you know going and seeing shows and performing myself it i think i sensed early on that it just felt very performative the way that they were doing the mission work in a way that i just thought was kind of gross so those where i where i started having issues was them telling me my pub, my school was bad when i thought my school was fine them telling me the comic books i read were bad when i thought they were fine them telling me the music i listened to was bad when i thought it was fine and but I believed enough and I wanted to, I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to, to, to do, do my part, play the role. So I did start going to the youth group when I was a teenager and it was just, it was fine. I was also doing Boy Scouts at the time. So like Boy Scouts, I really enjoyed cause you would literally go and you know, you'd get to either like talk to somebody who worked for the FBI and like learn about what it's like to be an FBI agent or, or, you know, you'd have like some cool activity where you're like earning a merit badge and then you'd get to end the night, like playing dodgeball with your friends in the, in the church gym. And I started going to youth group and it was like much more intense on the, let's talk about Jesus and let's talk about like how you should feel bad about everything about being a teenager. 
And that was where I was just, I, I started having a lot of frustrations. I still did really believe in everything. Like I wanted a relationship with Christ. I wanted to be a good Christian. I, I was truly faithful in that sense. And so that the fact that I was feeling this disconnect, I don't think it was frustrating, but it was like, it was the sort of thing where I was like, well, there's gotta be, there be something going on. If like, I'm constantly disagreeing with the church that I'm going to. And I had, I had good friends who went to other churches that were more traditional Presbyterian, who sort of had that sort of faith structure that is a little more open, you know, is a little bit more, we agree on some fundamentals, but as long as we all agree on the fundamentals, the, a lot of it's up for discussion and interpretation. But even given all that, I, I wanted to plug into this church as best I could, because I, I did have, you know, a community of friends and people I liked there. So I did start trying to go to the youth group. And that ended up being a really, really kind of awful experience. Um, I felt like I got along with everybody and didn't have any issues with anybody. And yet somehow I kept, I felt like the whole, I feel like one of the main messages of the youth group was like, you're a teenage boy, therefore you can't be trusted because you have hormones and you should feel terrible. Like, how dare you? How dare you have hormones and be attracted to other people? You know, and in, in course, in their minds, it would it could only be other young women. Like, I couldn't possibly be, you know, if I was attracted to somebody who wasn't a young woman, even more scandalous. And I remember there were like some really cute girls in the youth group that I totally was crushing on and would have loved to like get to know better. But it was just so, you know, any, it was like any, anytime you even try to talk to a girl, they were so suspicious of your intentions and so judgmental about what, you know, what you were trying to like, they, they treated you like you'd already done something wrong. And I remember in hindsight thinking like, now hang on a second. Like this is a church that's constantly saying it's not okay to be gay. It's not okay to be gay. Like you can't, don't ever, don't ever be gay. Whatever you do, don't be gay. This is before, you know, people were even talking about trans issues. So that wasn't even on the table. And so I remember mm -hmm. getting really confused because I was just like, well, I don't think I'm gay. I'm pretty sure I'm attracted to these girls in the youth group, but like, I'm not supposed to want that either. Like, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to want here? Like, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not allowed to like boys. I'm not allowed to like girls. If I do like girls, like I'm still in trouble, but I'm also like supposed to make sure I like somehow get a wife and get her pregnant as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't like, what is the, well, you know, and maybe this is like my scientific brain coming online here, but I'm just like, what's the process? Like, what do you, what is the procedure you want me to follow here? That would be appropriate to you? Because I feel like I literally can't do anything without, without being given a hard time for it. And it all sort of culminated at a youth retreat that I decided to go on, even though I was having, you know, mixed feelings about the youth group. I thought, okay, I'll go on this retreat. The retreat will be good. We'll, you know, we'll get out in the woods. We'll sit around the bonfire. Like that'll be good. I remember the retreat. I, I can't, it was some, some campground. It must've been in West Virginia. I can't remember where though. I think it was a dedicated like Christian campground. And by and large, the retreat was, so, it was so boring. It was so much like just preaching and prayer circles and, things that I just didn't find engaging because it wasn't like, it wasn't very social. It was a lot of like sit and listen. I remember at one point literally nodding off to sleep during one of the, the whatever it was and getting yelled at and just being like, no, I'm not nodding off to sleep. I'm praying. I'm praying. Like, this is how I look when I pray. Um, and, and so I wasn't, I wasn't having a good time on the retreat, but I was trying to make the best of it. One of the, 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 the girls that I totally had a crush on was also on the retreat and we did, you know, bonfire night, which was like a not long walk, but it was an unlit 
walk from the lodge where we were all st- I think we had like a lodge and then like separate boys cabins and girls cabins and so you know the fire pit the fire pit area was a long enough walk that in the dark you know it was, it was a walk and I remember she was uh we were sitting around the campfire and you know she was like wrapped up in a blanket and we were chatting and she said okay well I'm, you know I'm tired I'm gonna head, head back to the cabin and I said oh you know happy to walk you up to the lodge and like truly 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 to the you know I would I would uh, swear under oath had no ill intentions <laughs> of anything but I you know I just was enjoying my conversation enjoying getting to know her wanted to walk her back to the lodge and I remember the youth pastor like leaning over to one of the other adult chaperones and basically just being like follow them and like so this <laughs> like fully adult man is like lurking in the darkness behind these two teenagers who are just walking back to a lodge together in a way I was just like this is weird this is bizarre like this is not an appropriate way to to handle like a group of teenagers that are under your supervision uh and I just remember it felt icky I was just like oh that was just gross like why'd you do that like I really I, I even confronted him about it later I was like what was your, like what was your problem man what were you doing I confronted the youth pastor not the guy he'd sent to follow us and he go and he literally was like yeah I don't trust you I don't trust your intentions and I was like all right well that's dumb and you know i didn't uh i didn't have like i didn't have words for purity culture back then like that oh that. yeah we didn't we didn't have it then um I so did. i didn't i didn't recognize that this is what was was happening i was just confused and frustrated and felt like i wasn't getting any good answers but within the context of that youth group retreat escalated from there and and you know oh on one of the following subsequent nights to that incident with the girl uh and this is something i guess i didn't talk about uh when it happened and and since and like this is something my parents only found out about within the last year and were kind of horrified but a bunch of the guys in the youth group jumped me the one of the following nights and beat the crap out of me (laughs) oh my gosh back down by the fire pit where where i'd been talking to the girl and like i don't know if i i don't i doubt it was directed at me that might have just been coincidental that I'd had this, you know, kind of run in with the the youth minister, but um, it was like Jeez. four or five guys. Um, I was, I, I, and you know, I wasn't a weak, scrawny kid, but like I wasn't, I wasn't huge either. So it was, you know, they they were able to pin me down, arms like one, you know, I had a guy on each leg and a guy on each arm and a guy on my chest and hold me, hold me down. And like one of them was like a hockey player, I remember. So he's a pretty, pretty tough guy. And uh, they said they were going to duct tape me to the cross <laughs> and had like the oh, roll my. of duct tape and started trying to do it. And that was when I was like, well, I guess this is a real fight now. And so that was when I really started fighting them. And I fought hard enough that like they were, I wasn't able to overpower them, but they weren't able to, to control my limbs enough to like get me up on the cross. And I was eventually able to, to squirm out of Jeez. their grip and run for it. So that was sort of when I decided I probably wasn't going to be super involved with this youth group anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. That makes sense. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and, so. that, and that was probably around the time when I, I you know, I, I was probably, 14 or 15 when that happened. And so then I turned 16 and I get a car and that was around the time where my dad and I really started button heads about me not wanting to go to this church anymore. And I, I, in hindsight, I can see his confusion because I hadn't told him about some of the stuff that had been happening to me, but I said some probably unkind things to him at the time, you know, being a, a jerk teenage kid. And the eventual understanding we came to was that I was allowed not to go to that church, but I was expected to go to a church, which ended up being a fine arrangement for me because the town I grew up in, Charleston, West Virginia, 
you know, you could play basketball for your school if you wanted, but then you would end up paying basketball against schools from around the, the state. And you, you know, you would be traveling a bunch and it was super intense and competitive. So instead there was actually a church league for basketball. So most of my friends would play what we call church ball. Mm-hmm. There was a, a boys league and a girls league. And that way you just got to like play on a much smaller, less competitive team. So you probably got a ton of play time. You got to play against your friends at, you know, the local church gymnasiums around the valley. It was super fun. We had a blast. So I really wanted to play for my buddy Justin's church. And Justin is a double PK. His his parents are both Presbyterian pastors. And uh, he went <laughs> double to PK. double PK. And he went, uh, they, they were the pastors at, it's called Bream Memorial Presbyterian Church over on the, in the west side of Charleston across the Elk River. And so we were the Bream team instead of the, the dream team. You know, this was, the, <laughs> we were, we were not very good, but it had a mandatory attendance requirement. You had to attend church at least twice every month. So, you know, half the Sundays of the month to be eligible to play. So that was the arrangement with my dad ended up working out fine. Cause I had my own car. I could drive myself to church and the, the youth pastor there who did the youth Sunday school was somebody I really connected with and thought had a much more intellectual take on the Bible than the, the, what I've been getting from the previous church. And so and wasn't nearly as judgmental about everything. And so I just connected with the, uh, the youth group better. I really enjoyed playing on the basketball team. I really enjoyed getting to spend time with my buddy, Justin and his parents who I got close to. So, so that was how I basically ended out high school. And then because I was this early teenager that, you know, had made this arrangement with my dad, I, of course, the, the other two Sundays where I didn't necessarily have to go to Bream, I would go to the mosque with my friend who had invited me and celebrate Eid at the mosque. And that was, you know, this is, we're now in post 9-11 territory. And I, I was really like flattered that my friend Umbar had invited me to go to the mosque and celebrate Eid. And I didn't know about Eid. And it's the, the, the holiday that celebrates Abraham not slaughtering his own son, Isaac. <laughs> Good thing to celebrate, I guess, because Isaac lived. But, it, you know, I remember like, wow, this is like an event I know about from my own reading of the Bible, but I didn't know this was a holiday you could celebrate. And it's a holiday that gives you baklava? Hell yeah, I'm in. Um, <laughs> and then like my Mormon buddy invited me to go to the Mormon church. So I started going to the Mormon church. And then I think my dad caught me Googling uh, the nearest snake handling church and was like, Ryan, you've got to stop. You cannot, like when we said like you had to go to a church, you cannot go to the snake handling church. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was sort of where that exploration ended. But yeah, that was sort of how I finished out high school was going to this much more liberal, intellectual, academic Presbyterian church, having kind of escaped the really hardcore conservative evangelical duct tape to the cross style. Yeah. Church. Yeah. That's, that's a much, much more manageable type of experience than, than being forcibly duct taped to a cross. Yeah. Jeez Louise, that is an unbelievable... They must have gotten the idea from Smallville. Didn't that happen in an episode of Smallville to Tom Willing's character? There's a chance. I, I totally missed the, the Smallville bandwagon. So, yeah. I I don't know if it was because, like, CW or whatever the channel was called at the time, WB or UPN, kept changing. I I just missed Smallville entirely. So that... But, uh, but was this... You you have, like, alluded to the fact that, that you were interested in in like maintaining a, a type of faith, but just not the one that was being modeled for you. One that was sort of not, not tied to this conservative Christian masculinity, that type of bullshit that like, that a lot of people have, have had to untangle. Yeah. Um, I think, was, you know, and I think part of that comes down to being a theater kid, right? Like I was doing plays and like, you, you don't have to learn much about the history of theater to know that like men dressing up in drag and, uh, or just playing female characters is like a long and storied part of the theater tradition. So I just, I don't know for it just, even as a, even as a teenager, it just, it wasn't scanning. It didn't make sense to me. I'm 
you know, I'm smart enough to read the Bible myself and realize that sometimes even the things they're saying didn't jive with what I was reading in the actual text of the book. So I was glad to get away from from the the strongly evangelical side of things and was comfortable with the church I was going to throughout high school. And I was joking about this on the iFanboy Discord because somebody asked me if I was Jewish. And I used to get asked if I was Jewish all the time growing up. And I don't know why. Mm. I mean, there were Jewish kids in, in my town that I grew up with. The they had their own the, the synagogue and the temple had to join forces to get enough guys to have one team for the church basketball league, and they were the Jew crew. And um <laughs> <laughs> which is I apologize if that's not appropriate to say, but that's what what we, we were the bream team and they were that. And you know, and I would get invited to like bar and bat mitzvahs growing up too, which was super great. And I I loved mm-hmm. going to those as well. I, I remember constantly getting asked if I was Jewish, and then like I said something on the iFanboy podcast in reference to like understanding the Passover Seder. And somebody asked me in the discord if I was Jewish. And, and I, I was remembering back on how, like, I used to get asked that pretty regularly. And I guess like I have curly hair when it's not up on a bun, like it is now. So maybe that was part of it. But one time saw somebody saw me wearing a small cross that I used to wear as a necklace that my buddy Justin gave to me. And they were like, huh, wearing a cross. I was like, yeah, like, why are you wearing that? And I, I jokingly said, like, well, it stopped burning when I put it on. So I thought it was OK to start wearing again. And, <laughs> and then they were like, oh, no, 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 I just I thought you were Jewish. And I was like, no, no I'm not Jewish. And it was, you know, <laughs> funny thing. But that was sort of where, uh, you know, I was I would say that I was like a faithful person who truly did believe in everything having to do with with Christ and Christianity up through graduating high school and heading off to college. And was it through your sort of through further education that you started to question it further or what i mean i i always see this as an open question and to me i see i think any sort of path out of something like the fundamentalism that formed you and me in different ways is valid so like this is very a very open (laughs) type of question but was it was it what you started to learn at college that made you further deviate further from that or or what was what was learning about things in college like given what i mean you did you did go to public school so it wasn't like Mm -hmm. you had that level of uh, education educational bias let's say to and i was i was really lucky i mean i know people here west virginia and they 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 have a perception they hear appalachian they have a perception but like the school i went to and this the area the neighborhood i grew up in in charleston was fairly diverse like i i you know i truly did have Muslim friends, Jewish friends, Buddhist friends, Mormon friends, like, uh, you know, Catholic friends and Protestant friends. And for, for a time, like we all were living on the same street. Like I could walk down the block and, and encounter half a dozen different faith traditions, uh, on the street I was living on, which was a fantastic way to grow up. Like I, I couldn't recommend that level of pluralism and multiculturalism more just cause I, I, yeah, that's very cosmopolitan, you know, as far as, as, as far as like having, having a, uh, my my wife grew up in a college town too, so she had that sort of thing. But growing up, growing up in small town Indiana before moving to the Chicago suburbs, that was not. <laughs> that's not a lot of people's experience. It is just a lot of people that are just like you. I, yeah, I remember I, I was visiting a friend of mine who lived on the street, and she was Indian, and like I saw they had a Hindu shrine in their in their home, and I was like asking about, it. I was like, oh, what's that? And, like I could tell she was kind of embarrassed. She's like, oh, that's my mom's statue. You know, the, I can't remember which deity it was, so I don't want to guess and offend anyone. But like I remember her being kind of like, and and this was a house that they had clearly like had built. You know, it was that kind of subdivision where people would like get their little custom built homes. And I remember her even saying something like, yeah, we kind of built it. So it'd be off to the side and wouldn't be that obvious. But you know, it was like, it was, she's kind of embarrassed by it, but I was like, this is so cool. I love living in a place where this is, this is the experiences I get to have just like walking down the street. But in terms of going to college, I went from Charleston, West Virginia to the university of California, Santa Cruz. 
And those two towns are about the same size uh, population wise, but obviously culturally extremely different. And you asked if sort of getting an education at the college level caused me to question my faith more. And it did eventually, but at first I think I actually doubled down because I went to this place where what I kind of say about where I grew up is it was actually a very tolerant place. It was even tolerant in like a post 9-11 world. Like I, maybe my Muslim friends would disagree with this, but like at least within my high school, other than a few incidences where like the vice principal was not cool about one of the young Muslim women wearing a head covering because like hats weren't allowed at the school. And literally the entire student body was like, dude, not okay. Like you cannot like (laughs) ask her to take off a head covering. Like that's (laughs) completely inappropriate. And and we won that fight. So going, so I went from, but but the thing I kind of think about is where I grew up, like there was diversity, but I don't remember ever meeting an atheist. I don't remember ever meeting somebody who said, I don't believe in anything. Like you had to, you had to pick a team. It didn't matter what the team was, but you did have to be on a team. And so then I go to Santa Cruz and not only were like people openly atheist and, and agnostic, but they were hostile to the idea of religion in a way that I'd never experienced before. It was really confronting and it was confronting in a way that kind of made me double down because I was kind of like, well, hang on. like. How often have you been to church? Like, have you read the Bible? Like, what, what do you actually know about this thing you're criticizing? And it actually, like, it quickly dawned on me that it almost felt, you know, I think places like Santa Cruz, California, you know, Austin, Texas, those those sort of towns, they they pride themselves on being very liberal in a way that I think they equate to being open-minded. And the the reality I was met with when I moved there was not one of open-mindedness. It was actually very closed off and, 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 rid, and uh, rigid and, like, Rigidity is something I come back to a lot when I think about my faith journey is, is rigidity versus flexibility and how like rigid structures break flexible structures bend and take the weight and then can bend back. And I think I didn't have words for it at the time, but like the evangelical faith that I was brought up in was very rigid. It had no wiggle room. You had to do it exactly this way. And I think that rigidity creates a brittleness that when cracks start to form, even the tiniest crack can become catastrophic. And and we can talk about more about how that led to to my eventual falling out of faith later. But I just remember thinking like early on, like these people equate the fact that they've decided to be liberal or or brought up liberal with being open-minded, but like they're being really close-minded when it comes to like me talking about my faith and the experiences that I've had. And so I, I thought that was an interesting contradiction in terms. And I went to, uh, I went to Santa Cruz because I wanted to study astrophysics. They have a really good astrophysics program there. It's where they discovered the WIMP as I'm sure everyone's familiar with the weekly interactive interacting massive particle. And I went there for physics because I had a good physics teacher in high school. And I kind of just, that was the only thing I could think about in terms of like, I knew I wanted to do some kind of science. I knew science was my path. I, I always felt that. And my Christianity never conflicted with that side of things. When I, when I held that faith, I just always loved science. I always loved dinosaurs and animals and space. And those were like the things that I knew I wanted to, to spend as much of my life studying as I could. So I decided to go uh, astrophysics just because I didn't really get along with my biology teacher in high school. So like I didn't have that that feeling about biology that I might have. And I had a really great computer science teacher. So I was like, okay, I'll go for astrophysics. And if astrophysics doesn't work out, then I'll do like computer science. And if computer science doesn't work out, I'm in California. I'll go to LA and be an actor. <laughs> you're already there you already made the move did not realize how far away santa cruz is from it's quite the drive um, a drive I, I made many times while living there but not necessarily for auditions or anything but just to see friends but that was that was the naivete that i was entering this situation with 
And I've often said I've I've for for stretches lived outside the country and particularly in undergrad, I did a study abroad in Costa Rica. And I, I to this day feel very strongly that going from Charleston, West Virginia to Santa Cruz, California was a bigger culture shock than going from Santa Cruz, California to Monteverde, Costa Rica up in the mountains. Really? Yeah, it was just that confronting. I mean, it was it was just I, yeah, I almost I almost couldn't hang. I almost had to. I was I was starting to consider transferring back to a West Virginia school within my first year of being there. Was it just like the the sort of two vastly different sort of bubbles? Like, but I mean, even even so, like it sounds like at your experience within Charleston, it is. And I'm saying this as a as a lifelong Midwesterner. Like, I spent uh, almost a couple of years in Nashville, but for the most part, I've have lived my life in the Midwest. And the Midwest and the North and the and the West have an admittedly shallow understanding of the South, just this sort of cartoonish, very shallow. And I understand why Southern people have a chip on their shoulder, just like I understand why us Midwesterners have a chip on our shoulder. And the crazy crazy Um, thing that happens to me is that like, if I, when I talk to other Southerners, there's a lot of Southerners who won't consider Appalachia part of the South. They like want it to be its own thing. And like, I, I, I would, I would agree that it is a culturally distinct portion of the South, but like there are lots of culturally distinct parts of the South. There's the Tidewater in coastal Virginia. There's the low country in South Carolina. There's the Gulf coast. There's Cajun country there, you know, there's yeah, the, yeah. the Mississippi uh, river Valley. So, you know, there's, I, I think the South is a varied region in and of itself. It's not a monolith by any stretch, nor is Appalachia a monolith, but you know, I consider myself, I, I, these days I tend to say that I'm from Appalachia instead of saying from the South, just because I've gotten enough pushback on people saying that, Appalachia is not the South, even though the last time I checked the Mason-Dixon line, we were mostly below it, except for that weird little northern panhandle portion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so was it? So was it just this? This sort of the California and the Santa Cruz type bubble was so drastically different. Than, well, it was. Also, I mean, it was a huge was change, it? right? Like, so I didn't have a car my freshman year, so I was like learning to. And I never used public transportation growing up, so I'm like learning to use public transportation. I'm walking places. I never, you know, never walk anywhere in West Virginia. It's like you gotta dr- drive. It's too too mountainous. And then just like when I was in high school, which was the early aughts, uh, I graduated high school in 2004. We were kind of where in West Virginia we were in a place where there were teachers at our school who were gay and open about it, and there were people in the community, like the guy who cut my hair in high school, was openly gay. And there were students in my class that everybody suspected or, or more or less knew were gay, but n- in, at least within the student body, nobody was out. Like that was, you weren't, it was too early in, in the culture for a student to be out. And it was kind of a known thing of like, once you got to college, you could come out and it would be fine. So to go from that situation in high school to a place like Santa Cruz, where like the culture there was a, definitely ahead of where we were at. And there were plenty of, I just... Obviously, nobody was doing it to be confrontational, but I felt confronted by just how open people were with just like, no, I'm bi, no, I'm gay, no, I'm what, and I just was like, I'm not used to this. This is a, this is a lot for, for me, and I just, you know, um, right, sort of overwhelming, like the just yeah, the, the and, type and, of the information that was coming at you. And the UC system is like it's made to serve California students. Like, there's very few out-of-state kids. So there's like, when I was at Santa Cruz, there was five percent out-of-state students. So I was probably the only West Virginian on campus. I had heard of one girl from Charleston who'd gone to Santa Cruz before me, but we didn't overlap. So like I knew one person who'd been before, but that was it. 
So I was, you know, having to make all new friends, feeling confronted by by the cultural differences, feeling a lot of hostility towards my faith in ways that I I was comfortable enough with myself to like push back on, but it's still, you know, it's tiring, right? To to constantly feel like you have to be pushing back. And just like little things that today are almost laughable. I went to the dining hall and there was this one guy that I just I he was in our he was in like my friend group and I just didn't get along with him. He was found him very off-putting. And I remember he but he was the only part of he was the only one of my friend group when I went to the dining hall that day. So I like I sat at the table with him and I was like, hey man, how's it going? And he looked at the tray of food I had and he goes, is that even organic? And me, <laughs> me coming from West Virginia, I, I had taken chemistry. So I was like, I know the technical definition of organic in my head. I'm thinking like, this is all racing through my brain. And I'm just like, so I, what I said was, well, it's food. Like it has to be like, it can't, you can't <laughs> eat inorganic chemicals is like I would die. <laughs> and, and then he goes, Oh, that's not what I meant. I meant like, was it, you know, and he explained to me what organic food meant. Like that's how babe in the woods I was about all this stuff. And, yeah. And then I, I was, mean, my, my dad was an agricultural chemical salesman for most of his <laughs> professional <laughs> career. So I but, totally get that. <laughs> but I remember, I remember thinking back on that and just being like, we got our food from the same dining hall, you jerk. Like, why are you giving me our time? Like, it's not like you brought in a sack lunch. Like, <laughs> and so it, it, I was, I was just tired of, of that. And I missed my friends and it just was, un, you know, it was uncomfortable. It was new. And I was, I was struggling with it. I was struggling with the coursework. You know, it was, I, I, uh, I, I think I was smart enough to be bored through most of school. And so going to a, a good university was really challenging and like having to actually work to, do well in my classes was was confronting as well but then you know like i started really vibing with my group of friends i met a girl that went a long way to keep me in california probably most of the way 80 90 percent of the way if i'm being honest and and then like little moments started happening where like suddenly bluegrass was cool right i don't know if you remember that in the in the mid aughts when like everybody everybody was into bluegrass like iron and wine. And, yep, exactly. Well, that was like that was like indie, like the indie bluegrass. And but stuff. it was get, it was getting there, you know. Is that Duster? No, was it not? Not Guster. Guster. Uh, not Guster. Guster is like an alt rock, but uh, yeah, yeah. Dispatch, Dispatch. I'm conflating Guster mm-hmm. and Dispatch into one band in my mind. But I I remember there was one there was one moment that sticks out where like the same guy who had been a jerk about the organic food thing was so proud of himself for introducing the friend group to. He's like, hey guys, check out this band I just found. They're they're from Tennessee. They're called Old Crow Medicine Show. And everybody was like, yeah, 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 Ryan, like Ryan told us about them like a while ago. Like, (laughs) 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 so it was like the fact that I was already into old crow. I, you know, so, so I started like finding my groove, finding my niche at, at, um, Santa Cruz. And then my third quarter, it's on the quarter system at Santa Cruz. I took a course called the natural history and evolution of dinosaurs and literally changed my life because coming from. West Virginia, I mentioned I didn't have a good relationship with my biology teacher, so I didn't take like AP bio or anything like that. I took a couple other AP classes, but I'd literally mm-hmm. never been taught evolution. I'd only been taught creationism and intelligent design. And so like I was at, you know, this R1 university, one of the top 100 universities in the country as a creationist, just because I didn't know. I didn't know any better. Literally no one had ever told me a different story. And, and I took this dinosaur class because I was getting burnt out on all the physics and calculus I was having to do. And I thought, all right, well, dinosaurs, that could be cool. And it just completely reignited a love for fossils that I had since I was a kid, but had forgotten about. And then it also started describing this thing called evolution to me. And I was like, man, 
this makes a lot of sense. Like the way that the, <laughs> the way that like, you know, the way that they, they take the, the Ceratopsians and the way they branch off from the marginocephalia and the pachycephalosaurids and like it all connects. And like, you can really see that there's these little gradual changes that happen. Like, yeah, if you did just, if you did just make, you know, that, that Allosaurus like slightly longer and, and increase the head size and reduce the arm size. Like, yeah, you got a T-Rex and it was so elegant an explanation for the diversity of dinosaurs that I was like, Oh, I, I think I might've been lied to, <laughs> you know, like, and that was, the, that was not good yeah. for, uh, for old Ryan's or young Ryan's faith structure. Just cause like in terms of the rigidity of, of it being able to withstand a few body blows, that was a big one. <laughs> and I remember pushing back against it. I remember I, I basically, I took this class on dinosaurs loved it um suffered only a one head injury during the the course pretending to be a pachycephalosaurus which are the headbutting <laughs> dinosaurs um <laughs> me and my buddy were, were demoing for the class how this would work and we <laughs> total aside but basically our our professor hildy schwartz wonderful professor she wanted to demonstrate that there was this new thinking within the headbutting dinosaurs they probably didn't butt head to head because the dome on the 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 dome shaped head, it's actually kind of hard to get a direct hit. Like if you think of billiards and getting like a lot of glancing blows, so the thinking was they probably were hitting each other in like the rump and the hides and stuff like that. And we don't have a great fossil record of these animals. So these things are hard to test. But she wanted to show that like if you take two bowling balls on the top of your head and if you run at each other, it's actually really hard to get a direct hit. You know, get full contact. And of course, my buddy Rod, I think his name was, we do it and we get a perfect inelastic collision, which I was the term I used because I've been taking a bunch of physics courses. And, and we just both fall back completely. I mean, I, my eyes were watering. I was seeing stars. It was totally... Oh just, my gosh, that's wild. But it's also like, that's probably exactly what teenage pachycephalosaurids were doing. They were probably also being stupid idiots and hitting their heads together way too hard. Um, <laughs> uh, so maybe my life's course changed because of the the hitting my head with a bowling ball, but I like to believe it changed because my eyes were open to the, the elegance and wonder of evolution, which I still, to this day, think is just one of the most beautiful systems that I've ever been taught. And it's like... To this day, it's hard for me not to look at any other organized system of information that exists in the universe and not see it through this lens of like the way things tend to evolve in increasing complexity and stasis and and divergence and convergence and parallelisms over time. So, you know, to to me, it's like it truly was a life changing theory to learn. And it wasn't it didn't obliterate my faith, but it was like it started making me realize I don't think if this information was available to the people that were telling me about creationism and intelligent design, why would they hide it? Well, yeah. What were they, what were they so worried about? Like, right. this didn't destroy my faith. This, this taught me a beauty that exists within the natural world that I couldn't have ever fathomed through the lens of creationism or intelligent design. Like it's, and so that was where the, that idea that you mentioned of like my education started chipping away at things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Be, because just just to give a parallel a, a parallel in in my own education, which was really about history and religion and and language, you know, it was not a scientific education. But I did take a class that was taught by uh, what I can now identify as like a Christian reconstructionist. But he assigned Thomas Kuhn's book, that History of Scientific Revolutions, and even that was enough context to recognize how. If, if you're just talking about systems, like sometimes if you, when fundamentalism is a system, but as you've, as you've said, and I think it's a really good metaphor, 
is this this idea of rigidity. It can't withstand things that that challenge it. It's not flexible enough to do it. And that that actually hasn't really changed since the 19th century when when there was a backlash against German higher criticism and evolution. Like yep. it was it was those concerns that motivated fundamentalists to write the fundamentals, which is the text that they're named after. So and it was through learning the history and not the science, actually, that became something that altered my faith. <laughs> so like for for that to be I think it's fascinating to to see that from the other perspective, you know, and like you being completely blown away by how how the natural world works and having it make sense and it making more sense than mm-hmm. the than the supposedly better answer of God did this in six days, whether that was six ages, whether it was right. 6,000 years, like whatever, like whether you're young earth or old earth cre- creationist, like, yeah. Uh, and, that, and that was, I never, I never had like a major horse in that particular old earth versus young earth creationism race. Um, I always, I always assumed that to whatever extent these, these stories were metaphorical, it would all make, it would all come together in the wash and make sense somehow. So that was never something I, I felt particularly strongly about. But I don't know if you've talked about this on the show, but like Darwin knew he was going to stir the pot in a big way when he uh, was coming up with his ideas of, of natural selection or evolu- evolution by means of natural selection. So he sat on his ideas for decades because he knew he knew once he, he put it out there, people were going to be real mad. I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was aware of what Galileo went through, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it yeah, wasn't until. That- it actually wasn't until a different British naturalist named Alfred Russell Wallace wrote Darwin a letter saying like, Hey Darwin, I know you've been, cause Darwin, like he came from enough money that he never was a professor or anything. He literally just lived on his estate and did his little experiments by himself and went on long walks and wrote his papers, corresponded with his friends. It sounds, sounds, sounds kind of awesome, <laughs> especially yeah. in like COVID land, just to have an estate, with, with <laughs> a greenhouse and a garden and walking grounds. And this is all after he'd done his voyage on the Beagle and in his voyage mm-hmm. on the Beagle. Like, I think people also underestimate the amount of geology that, that Darwin was interested in. Like he was looking at the rock formations from the ship as they were going around the, the coast of South America. He was collecting fossils that um, they still have at his estate in down England. It, it was after he received a letter from this, this, young upstart by by his standards named Alfred Russell Wallace, who had been traveling through um, the South Pacific and had basically made the same observations Darwin had made while going around South America and the Galapagos and had written Darwin to say, hey, I know you've been working on this stuff. I kind of got this idea. Like, what if what if there's like a differential survival that causes certain traits to be favored over others? And that leads to like animals having, you know, changing over time. And Darwin was like, oh, crap. Okay, well, I guess I got to publish now because like (laughs) somebody else has (laughs) made the same observation. They actually submitted their papers to the same scientific society. And they were read the way scientific um, journals used to distribute things or scientific papers used to get distributed is you'd submit it and it would be read at the paper would be read at a meeting because it was expensive to print and send out papers to everyone who would want a copy. So they would read it aloud at this meeting and then eventually it would get published in a volume. So reading it was considered the, the official publication date for that paper. And so they actually read both their papers at the same meeting of this, some, some society in London, but they read Darwin's first as sort of a acknowledgement that like, we all know you've been working on this for 20 years and that we're only doing this now because Wallace came along and, and had the same idea. 
So yeah, just... <laughs> I actually didn't know. I didn't know that 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 it was separated by that much. I I because it's 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 usually the two of them together is usually also given as uh, as an example of like simultaneous discovery or mm-hmm. simultaneous invention, which I guess it's really not because he had a couple decades on him, but he just, as you said, was was conscientious of the effects of what his writings would would have. Mm-hmm. So throughout this time. Because I, I do want to talk a little bit about like about about comics as well, because I am you know I'm, I mentioned at the top of the of, of our conversation I'm sort of fanboying out a little bit. You eventually get plugged in several years later with with I fanboy, but let's not, let's not necessarily we don't have to talk about that. But I'm curious about how you you're developing this like this scientific education and a scientific career, uh, but you also have an interest in in comics and as as a hobby i actually i love comics for a lot of reasons but one of them is is that just the immensity of the ideas can be really provocative you know like a grant morrison comic is an incredibly can be incredibly inventive and just wild ideas and it's and that's just one example and then there's tons of other creators that are doing other really interesting things throughout your process even growing up or when you're in college to today i am curious how like how in addition to things like shitty experiences at a youth at youth group uh, retreats and stuff how art and comics also informed the way your own uh your own beliefs were evolving that's a no that's a great question uh, i i uh happy you asked it you know re- rewinding back to childhood always love superheroes you know spider-man uh, super superman batman all that um have watched the cartoons as far back as i can remember i remember watching the movies when i was a kid i would even extend that to something like star wars i remember watching the star wars movies and the back to the future movies so like pop culture was always kind of a thing it was something i remember my mom and i kind of sharing of like you know her showing me something like back to the future and i remember again like that getting back to the idea of wanting to make sure i was had a, like a moral upbringing being like, okay, now Marty McFly says some words that you're not allowed to say <laughs> in this movie, but like, it's still a really good yeah. movie. And like, let's sit down and watch yeah, yeah. back to the future. And I was like, yeah, that's awesome. The 1960s Batman movie with Adam Westenberg Ward. Oh, I mean, <laughs> I think, I think that was one we recorded off of the VH, you know, using the VHS when it was like HBO's free week. They used to do those weeks where it was like free. For, oh yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, watching, Oh, just watching the hell out of that, that Batman tape. Loved it. Some, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. And, and, uh, you know, I didn't have enough money to like collect comics as a kid, but every once in a while the bookstore would have like a pack of just like single issues that you could grab for five bucks. And it was just a complete grab bag. Those are some of my earliest comic memories. And then in high school, the Mormon buddy that I mentioned, Dan, was an excellent, was and is an excellent artist. And I remember getting really into drawing because I was trying to keep up with him. This really, you know, just immense talent. And uh, gets back to the physics teacher that I mentioned really liking. Uh, My physics teacher was named Bill Summers. He was known around school as Wild Bill because he was just kind of a very big personality. He would... um, he would come in like one morning and just like take a, a, a free weight and duct tape it to the wall and just be like force. And then he would, and then he would like flip <laughs> and then he would like flip a desk and be like force. And, he, and like, that's how you teach <laughs> physics. And it was amazing. Um, so just a, a certain kind of guy and a good old boy in the truest sense of the word. 
And <laughs> Dan and I were not particularly gifted physics students relative to some of the other friends I had in that class. But um, I think I was expected to try. And so I remember there was there was one time where it was like free lab and we were supposed to be catching up on lab work that we'd missed out on. And instead, Dan was like scratching a sketching a Grendel or something and um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Grendel eater of man's. And I was sketching, too, but my sketches weren't nearly as good. And Bill came up to me. I said, Ryan, because in Appalachian English, my name is one syllable for those who weren't aware. It's Ryan. Um, Ryan, get back to work. And I said, like, why are you yelling at me, Bill? Dan's not working either. And he just leans in close to me and goes, Dan does not have to work. Dan is an artiste. <laughs> so it was it was that it was those sort of moments that uh drove me back to the the it was I didn't have a comic shop in town, but to the books a million to mm-hmm. start collecting uh comics again. And um that was also right around when Marvel launched the Ultimate line, which actually ended up being perfect for me because it was like they're rebooting all of these stories that I kind of knew from watching the cartoons and the and reading what comics I had, but like getting an issue, issue one of ultimate Spider-Man issue one of ultimate X-Men issue one of fantastic four ultimate fantastic four. Like, yeah. Really number easy. ones are number ones are for, for those of you that are listening that are not comic, not comic fans. Those are, are the best. They're called jumping on points. So whenever, whenever there's a new story and new number one, that means you can jump on and know and understand and not, have to know a ton of continuity. It's like if days of our lives said, this is the episode for the first timers to watch, to get you up. To speed, <laughs> and then we'll, we'll That's go right. There. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause, cause, and I think the thing that I, uh, you know, I saw, I was, I, I told myself I was getting the, I was getting them for the art, you know, uh, that was also when John Romita Jr. was on his Spider-Man run with J. Michael Straczynski. And I remember just like trying to redraw those pages over and over and over again. Cause I love that run. I actually love that run because of, I know that that run gets a lot of uh, hate because it inter- introduced the spider totem. And actually like I always listen to it to iFanboy, and like they, they do not like that, <laughs> that run because it in- introduces that and tries to force a legacy or some supernatural thing. But it was actually the, that story and some of the art and some of the writing that Straczynski did in that when he like, openly sort of wrestled with his faith that I found a lot of <laughs> resonance. No, I, I remember thinking the same thing. Uh, I have issues with that run because of the retconning of Gwen Stacy and Norman Osborn having a relationship. I thought yes, that was, that was weird. Gross. And that's, I'm, I'm glad that has been memory hold. Like um, that. <laughs> but, but that was also after John Romita Jr. had left the book. So that's also like, yeah, that was like a Deodato one or something. And yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was like weird Tommy Lee Jones, Norman Osborn. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, Deodato is a photo reference uh, heavy artist, and so I think he comes anyway. and goes. He comes and goes in and out of it, but that was a particularly yeah. photo reference. I think he's actually. I like Deodato's art fine. I actually think he's a very good good artist, but I just that that story didn't work for me on a number of levels. Yeah, yeah, that one was bad. That one was very bad. <laughs> so, so, so you know, by the time I graduated high school, getting back to that kind of inflection point, I was reading you know the Ultimate series, and I was reading Amazing Spider Man. I was reading. I, I was trying to get, pick up the Superman books where I could, and. Uh, I remember a couple of things. I remember seeing, you know, early days of the internet. I remember seeing like tail. Cause I didn't know to check comic websites. I didn't know anything. I was an idiot. But I remember seeing tales of like, they're going to do Superman, but in the Soviet union. And I was like, that sounds cool as hell. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I got paired with my college roommate, this guy, Steve. And, you know, I'm sure I can't imagine what Steve must've been thinking of. Just like I got, he's from Fresno and he's like, I got to live with this kid from West Virginia. Like what? 
what's going on? Um, <laughs> so we had like a couple of phone calls before moving in together. And we were talking about what we were into. And I said, well, you know, I like, like comic books. And he goes, oh, have you read Watchmen? And I hadn't. I'd never heard of it. And he's like, oh, I have a copy. I'll bring it. And so like literally I moved to Santa Cruz. I read Watchmen. My mind is blown. I think he also had V for Vendetta, which I then instantly devoured. And so like I, I had to find the comic shop in town. And for pop culture nerds, uh, the comic shop in Santa Cruz, California, at least the one I went to uh, most often while I was living there, there are others in town, so I'm not trying to uh, promote anyone over the other, is this place called Atlantis Fantasy World, run by a guy named Joe. He, he named it Atlantis because he wanted his comic shop to be the first one in the phone book, which I'm just like, love that old school <laughs> marketing thinking. But it's, it's, the, it's the comic shop from Lost Boys, the Kiefer Sutherland vampire movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I found this comic shop and I went in and was like, Hey, so I heard at some point that there was like a Soviet Superman book. And Joe was like, yes, it's great. Here it is. And it was, I was so far behind. It had already been collected into a trade, a trade paperback. And I was like, Oh, great. Thanks. And I read it and was just blown away. And I was like, this is so cool. And so I just started going every week and I never full, I never fully had a pull list just because I was a poor college student. But anytime I could scrounge up enough money to get a collected edition of something, or a graphic novel, uh, I would do it. And, and I eventually ended up working at that comic shop. So I had a, a job at the comic shop in part, I think just because I reached a point where my knowledge just became encyclopedic. And I remember we had a signing for this shop didn't do a ton of signings, but every once in a while I would do a signing and we did a signing for Bill Willingham, the fables. writer of fables. Uh, and this was the height of fables mania, which I think people forget how just huge a book that was for a time. And this comic shop, it, one of the really cool things about it is Joe wanted to create a place that was a little more family friendly, a little more female friendly than a lot of the comic shops that I think, you know, people who have spent time in comic shops have experienced. And so he typically employed mostly women at the shop. So when I was working there, himself and myself were the only two male employees in the shop. The rest were, it was a female staff just to make it a friendlier place for women. And I think, you know, some people might hear that in a modern context and think like, oh, he was just hiring women for the men who came to the shop. And it truly wasn't the case. Like if a dude came into the shop that everyone knew was kind of a creep, like that was my customer. Like I had to go talk to that guy. I had to be the one who interacted with them, checked them out at the register. Like we, they were kept, you know, they were uh, um, not allowed to be a creep around the female employees. And I remember even complaining about it at one point to, to the women I worked with who were all good friends of mine. And I really enjoyed working with them being like, like he's a creep to me too. Like, I don't like it either. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're like, yeah, but it's not, he's not, he's a creep to you, but he's not a threat. And I was like, that's all right. Fair. That's fine. So like, <laughs> that's would, fair. Yeah. Yeah. Take take my lumps and go deal with the dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it was it, you know that I think it was actually that that signing with Willingham where I was supposed to kind of be the 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 person managing the line for the the signings but gave me a lot of time just to kind of chat with Bill in between people coming in and Bill at one point said to Joe like Joe this kid knows everything about comics this is insane. I was like, yeah, I just, I mean, I literally, when I cl close up the shop at night, I would just grab a stack of books and take them home and read as many of them as I could and bring them back and reshelve them before the shop opened in the morning. And that was like, I just was a sponge for as many, as many books as I could get my hands on. And Bill told me that he was in town because doing a couple different signings and he was heading up to San Francisco the next day to sign at a shop called Isotope Comics, which is a show that gets mentioned on iFanboy, uh, not infrequently because it was Ron's shop for a very long time and my shop as well when I lived in San Francisco. And that's run by a guy named James Syme. 
And um, Bill was like, yeah, you should come up. You know, if you're, if you got nothing, if you, if you got the day off work, you should come up to Ice Dope. I'm doing another signing there. It'd be great to keep chatting with you. I was like, the guy who writes one of my favorite series just asked me to come to his next signing. Like, I'm going. So me and my girlfriend went up to Isotope, and that's my first time seeing Isotope. And it's like, it's literally a comic shop that converts into a cool bar for cool people. And it's just one of the best spaces in San Francisco and in my heart. So I went up and had like another amazing night hanging out with uh, Willingham and getting to know all these other just absolute freaks in, in San Francisco. And I think they would know that I say freaks with nothing but love. And so then I started like seeing San Francisco as this place I could go to like do comic book stuff, including WonderCon, because WonderCon used to be in San Francisco before it was in Anaheim. And so I started going to WonderCon and it was at a WonderCon that must have been, oh, I don't even want to say the year, 2006, seven, maybe. The iFanboy guys were doing their video show. And so they were going to all these conventions and they were at WonderCon and then they were having an after party at Isotope. And so it's like, well, I've been listening to this podcast for a little while, so I feel like I know these guys. They're going to be at the same convention I'm going to be at, and they're having an after party at this place that I know is a really cool spot to have an after party. And so they were, I randomly saw the three of them, and I recognized them because they've been doing the video show. Saw them at a panel, I think it was the DC panel with Dan Dio. And after the panel was over, I just went up and introduced myself and I said, hey, I'm a listener, and like, you guys are great, and I'm going to be at the Isotope party later today. And they were like, okay, awesome. See you then. And like, that's literally the, that's, you know, the moment where I met all three of them and the relationship that, began, <laughs> this dweeby little college student coming up to him after a panel at WonderCon. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. That's very cool to sort of give a synopsis to the, to the listeners about iFanboy. I, I mentioned it at the beginning of the, of our conversation, but it, it's one of the podcasts that I've listened to the longest, literally since I ever really started listening to podcasts when I realized I had such a long commute and I had an iPod <laughs> that I could, right? um, it didn't used to all know. be on your phone. You used to have to carry multiple devices. Yep. So, so I would queue it up on Sunday and listen to it on, on Monday on my, on my commute. And it also used to be, they also ran a, a website that Ryan wrote for. Uh, and I really loved, it was my favorite comic commentary site for a really long time before they stopped doing that and but then continued to develop the podcast so that's that's really cool the only i've uh i saw i think ron from afar he was one of the one of the hosts there's been several eras of uh i fanboy history but he was one of the first three hosts and i saw him from afar at like c2e2 in like 2010 <laughs> but i don't think i've not i've not met them but they yes i i really do I, I haven't it's it's fun to hear that about how how you're able to just sort of meet them and and develop that um, and, I, and I've talked to I, I, in particular I've talked with Josh about that moment and I don't, I don't know if they really remember it and I, I tend to like I tend to think of myself as sort of the Jimmy Olsen to iFam. I'm like the plucky kid brother you know to, to <laughs> right uh, even though I'm like you know gray haired and got my own kid but I'm still like the plucky kid brother to these three these three guys and the way the whole writing for the website thing happened was I'd, I'd started, I'd started my own website because I wanted to do something like they were doing. I started my own website that was going to be like comic reviews and beer reviews and a podcast. And, and we even recorded a couple of podcasts that are thankfully completely gone from the internet. As far as I know, do not go looking for them. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and it was the early days, you know, we were, uh, I can't remember if science sort of science sort of probably just started. So like I was 
coming up as a content producer and sort of uh, maybe not making a name for myself, but at least showing that I, I could stick to doing some content production. And Ron had moved to San Francisco to work for Image Comics, a indie publisher based in uh, the Bay, Bay Area, East Bay, Berkeley. He invited me out to dinner. He was like, hey, Ryan, are you, are you gonna, like next time you're in the city, like let me know. Let's go get dinner. And so I was like, okay. And um, he lived in a neighborhood I was a little bit familiar with, so I knew where to find him. And and he was like, yeah, let's go to this. Let's go to the sushi place near my apartment. I was like, all right, that sounds good. And we go to the sushi place, and and I was and sushi's like a weird, like it's a weird place for like two dudes not in like a romantic relationship to go to because like sushi's such a shared food, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, I was like, uh, so like you want to order a couple of rolls or something? He goes, no, 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 I don't eat sushi. And I was like, why? Why are we here? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> like he was like, I just want to try this restaurant. I don't need to do that. <laughs> so he got like a teriyaki bowl or ramen or something. <laughs> it was before ramen was like a huge thing. Uh, but yeah, it was that it was that dinner where he asked me. He's like, hey, so like we're gonna like turn the site into a full time content production machine, and uh, you know, if, if I'd like to bring you on as a writer. And I was like, oh, awesome. So that was how I ended up being a writer up until the site stopped doing full time written content and went back to just doing the podcast. And. Talk a little bit about what you what your science sort of show is also about. You you do that with a couple of other hosts and Yeah, um, so towards the end of my undergrad career at Santa Cruz, what ended up happening was I after this dinosaurs class, I switched majors to ecology and evolutionary biology. I just went full in on the evolutionary stuff. And it's with with some irony that I now consider myself more of an ecologist than an evolutionary biologist. And I took a bunch of classes in earth uh, and planetary sciences too, just because like most places don't offer a paleontology degree. You just kind of have to mix and match enough biology and geology classes to sort of find a way to meet in the middle. Because as I often say, paleontology is the intersection of the record of life with the record of the rocks, right? So it's where rocks and life meet, which I think is really beautiful and awesome. But I was kind of cobbling together enough courses to complete a biology degree with a ton of extra earth science credits that nobody asked me for. And I was applying to grad schools in 2008 and then the economy tanked and the program that I got into the professor that I'd interviewed with that I'd wanted to work with literally called me like on the phone, like didn't send an email, didn't send a letter. and was like, Hey, so like on paper you are good and you got in, we have no money. And so I can't accept a student right now. So I'm going to get a rejection, but I want you to know that like, it's not a rejection that like had anything to do with you. It had to do with the money. Cause like literally they flew me out to the university. I'd done a weekend as a prospective student interviewing with faculty, working with, you know, talking with grad students and stuff like that. And so that was crushing. That was 2008. So I had just finished my biology degree and I was really sad <laughs> and um, gave myself a little bit of time to recover from from that blow emotionally. And then I said, OK, there's got to be something I can do. And I talked to my undergrad advisor, uh, Paul Koch, who's still a, a great mentor to me to this day, and said, hey, I feel like I've taken enough earth science classes that like, I can't be that far off from a minor. Like if maybe if I stick or like, can I stick around for another year? I was working in his lab at the time. So I was like, can you keep paying me to work in your lab? And maybe I can like take a few extra classes and get a minor and then reapply to grad school next year uh, with like another, you know, extra title under my belt. And, and Paul tends to speak in very like clipped uh, phrases. So he goes, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, do that. It's fine. So he sent me across the hall to the woman who was the, the undergrad, like, mentor person, you know, would help people with their class schedules and, and organizing things so you could finish your degree on time. 
And she was wonderful. And she basically looked at all the courses I'd taken and was like, oh yeah, you could very easily get a minor with just a couple extra classes. And then she started like, I could see the gear start turning in her head. And she's like, and hang on, if you take this then and this then, and if you take these two classes at the same time, no one's ever done that before, but I bet we can make it work. Like you actually could just <laughs> fully double major. Like you could get a full, you could get a degree. And I was like, well, uh, I was like, do I want that? And and she's like, well, you know, it's possible. You would just need to make sure you have an advisor. And she literally just like leans her head out of her office because she was right across the hall from Paul's office. It's like, Paul, do you want to be Ryan's advisor to do a full degree instead of just a minor? And Paul goes, yeah, sounds good. It's fine. And she literally hands me a piece of paper. She's like, here, go have Paul sign this. And I'm like, what's happening? And I just like walk across the hall and Paul signs. He's like, all right, good luck. And, you know, and I was literally so overbooked for classes that like two of the courses that me and one of the student were in had to like arrange their field trips around the fact that we were going on field trips with one class or the other every other weekend and never had a weekend at home <laughs> because of Wild. the intensity of the, the, the program we'd been signed up for. And then <laughs> Cut to a year later, I've finished my I've finished my my geology degree and I was basically living in Paul's lab by that point. I he had a couch in his lab, which was just like his old couch, and it was covered in dog hair and spit and whoever who knows what else. And I was literally <laughs> sleeping on that couch. I there was a coffee shop inside the building that was the Earth and Planetary Sciences building. Or it's Earth and Marine Sciences at Santa Cruz. And like I was literally going to the coffee shop as they closed to take whatever they were getting ready to throw out in like a travel mug back to the lab with me. And then I was back at the coffee shop as it was opening because I hadn't left the building <laughs> the next morning. I would go home to shower. Like I would go shower and change clothes and then come back to the, the lab and just keep working. And Paul, I remember, saw me, you know, a few days before graduation and was like, well, you did it. Good job. But um, yeah, I don't think we're going to let anyone do that again. That was, uh, that was too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you don't look good. That's not a good idea. <laughs> so he totally, totally guinea pigged me for the one year geology degree and decided it was not a great way, not a great thing to do to a, a student. <laughs> so all that is to say, I was, I was basically living in his lab and a couple of his grad students and I became close friends and we would, uh, you know, we'd horse around and we'd watch movie trailers and talk about movies we were excited for and video games we were excited for and, and go to happy hour together and talk about research that was, you know, interesting, but not related to the research we were doing. Eventually, Patrick Wheatley, my partner in this uh, podcasting endeavor, low these 10 plus years, said to me, you know, he was getting ready to finish his dissertation. He was like, he's kind of, th- he's like saying, I want to do an outreach project because I need to remember why I like doing science. Because <laughs> mm. I'm pretty burnt out by the end of this dissertation. And he's like, I kind of, like, I kind of thought I could do a blog, but I don't really want to write more because that's all I'm doing is writing. And he's like, and I feel like I remember you saying you knew something about podcasting because I'd done this little podcast that is now no longer on the internet for for the benefit (laughs) of everyone involved. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't good. (laughs) And it was dumb. I totally get it. So, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I do know a little bit about podcasting. I kind of, I got, I knew, I knew enough to like, I knew how to record audio I knew how to do some basic edits in Audacity, and I knew how to get it on iTunes, right? That was, those were the things I knew how to do. And that was a skill set that he didn't have, but was interested in. And so he's like, well, would you want to do a podcast? And I said, yeah, sure. And I, I, I thinking back on the experience that I just had, I was like, I have a few demands. Demand number one, like, we got to get a web domain. We got we to gotta create a cool logo, and we got to do the show for a month before we start releasing episodes, because I want to prove to ourselves that we can hang with a schedule. And we did it. And uh, it was me, 
Patrick and Justin, who they sat back back to back. They had like back to back desks in this little corner of Paul's lab that they called the manlet. And uh, <laughs> and then Justin, I think, quickly realized that he's more of an actual scientist than he is a broadcaster and was kind of like, yeah, I'm not really loving this. I think I'm going to go do something else. We're like, oh, that, we appreciate that. And, you know, you're always a founding member of the show. And but uh, I had made friends with this guy who was Patrick's friend first. I made friends with this guy, Charlie. Uh, and we kind of brought in Charlie as the third co-host and we've since expanded the roster since then. But Charlie also always will have a special place in my heart because I had a really bad breakup uh, in the latter days of, of that second degree and was very hungover on the couch in Paul's lab. And Charlie brought me like a, a nice juice drink being like, hey, I, think, I think you need this. And I was like, you're a good guy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. so that's like that's like my site. Those are like my they're like my science older brothers, and then like I fanboy are like my comics older brothers. So I have like I, I create these <laughs> little groups of older brothers for myself as the oldest child, <laughs> but I never had the the older siblings to guide me. So I go and right. find I go and find them and make them. So with with everything that you sort of experienced from college and everything else, because I I don't think we necessarily need to talk about some of the other stuff about you know, like comics unless that's interesting to you, as far as like you know, storylines that, that were evocative to you or had, had, uh, impact. I think, I think all I can, all I'll say about it to sort of wrap up that side of things is to me, I love that. I always have loved that comic books are mythology and they're modern mythology. They're modern myth making their modern storytelling. They're they're I always think about like the way that the, that, that Homer was telling these stories of, of gods and heroes. To me, those are, what people were they people enjoyed the same things about those that I enjoy about comics. And it, it, it just so happens that Thor has been a character throughout all of it. <laughs> so, yes, so yes. to me, I, I've always been a, a nerd about mythology and the fact that like comics are a mythology that's still being made right in front of our eyes is really cool. And there was, we can get back into the, the Christian side of things, but like there was definitely a point in my life where like, I realized that, the stories that I've been raised with from the Bible are their own kind of mythology. And like, that might be a really offensive statement to some people, but to me, it's also like, it's not a dig. It's, it's actually kind of cool that there's like mythology within the Christian tradition too. It just, it reframes the, the sincerity with which I consume it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that that is, I think that is part of the big divide between more fundamentalist views of faith and those that if you want to use terms like progressive like have on things that that like fundamentalists would say the the you know the inerrancy of the bible these things are literally true that's not a concern for someone who follows like you know the theology of someone like paul tillich a modern theologian who believes in something that that can accept that uh that these have have mythological qualities and that Christianity and even religion in general is, has a degree of non being non-literal mm. being, being mythical. And that is a very different. So with sort of with the way you approach things, um, go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah. It's like, it's like, I don't know how you read the story of, of Job and not see that as a myth, right? Like it's uh, yeah. Right. But it is, but I, I mean, the fact that it the fact that it's mythical doesn't mean that it's not significant like the stories can have meaning beyond their beyond their literal truth I, and like i i remember discovering the sandman 
series like and i i got like almost all of them or all of them at like a half price books really cheap and devouring them over one summer that was a really difficult summer and i went to christian college so i was working through my own things (laughs) (laughs) um but the fact that it's so blatantly about mythology and the idea of gods dying like that's that's literally baked into the story into the narrative. I had that with American Gods, which is another mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it is part of it is part of his his approach to mythology. Like Sandman is essentially like a, a meta mythology. You know, it's a it's a mythology that includes and encompasses other existing theologies. Yeah, it's almost like it's it's the it's like the scaffolding upon which other mythologies were built. Sort mm-hmm. of, like it's yeah, the yeah. It's the bones of of other myths. Yeah, and that's that. That was fascinating to me, but it also made it clear that, like, I don't know if you've read the Sandman, and yes, I'm, I, I don't know. Spoilers, I guess, because there's it's been out for almost forty years, but the Netflix series is about to start. So, uh, there you go. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear something at the literal last. Have you read the Sandman? I have, of course. Okay, all right. So what Bill blew Willingham my mind said I knew everything. <laughs> <laughs> what blew my mind was was when Morpheus the when Lord of Dream exits the stage and Cain and Abel are talking and they say, then what really happened? What really changed? And Abel says, A point of view. Um, I guess we should clarify that Cain and Abel are the two brothers who run the House of Mystery, which is like this mythical meeting spot for story for for the the sort of outside the realm of reality storytellers of the dc universe and the vertigo universe and so they are also the cain and abel from the bible and they're and cain is constantly trying to kill abel but like they're they're living brothers who are who are getting up to some nonsense and cain cain oversees secrets and abel oversees mysteries i think um there's a a house of secrets and a house of mysteries you're right yeah that's correct yeah so uh anyways that I remember that blowing my mind. And and like the that is not something that sort of jives with this sort of inherited worldview or faith of origin that's steeped in more fundamentalism. So for you just to sort of try to tie things together, you've you had this very in, very intense collegiate experience like uh, just mainlining a lot of <laughs> a lot of information and then having a ton of experiences, but the way you talk about it, like it, it, it made you develop a greater appreciation for things. How did that change? Well, like sort of where you are now as you relate to things like uh, religion or philosophy, um, how do you sort of approach those things for you? Yeah. So I, I think it gets back to that idea that like when I learned sort of what evolution was really about, this feeling that I'd been misled and that really didn't set well with me. I was really frustrated that like this thing about the world that by all accounts appears to be true, I was told was not true. And I'm not entirely sure why, because it doesn't seem to break any aspect of this thing. I believe. So like, why were you lying to me? Like what, what were you trying to hide? And, and I'm the kind of person I think there are, there, there are, I think a lot of people out there like me who are motivated in, by spite, right? Spite is a huge motivator for me. I, I 
the te- the teacher telling me I couldn't do something or I wasn't wasn't any good at something is the reason I became good at computers and math and all these other things in my life. So um, maybe not the healthiest motivation, but it is a thing that I find has motivated me throughout the years. Right. Prove prove them wrong. Prove them yeah. Wrong. Exactly. Exactly. I'll show you. And so I just decided I was just gonna I was just gonna learn every I was just gonna learn all of it. Like I was gonna learn all this forbidden knowledge they didn't want me to have. And there's, I think there's a thing in, in evangelical circles where like, well, we can't teach our kids evolution because it'll undermine the belief in God. And I'm like, well, in some ways, like if your faith is structured the way that it was structured for me when I was growing up, like that's not entirely wrong. Like I, it, you hate to admit it. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that like they have a valid argument there, but like they, in my case, at least like that was kind of true, but it was because you hadn't told me the truth. Like if you told me the truth and found a way to make it, you know, the Francis Collins idea of just like if yeah if everything right. is true then there must be a way that it all makes sense together but like i wasn't right. given that flexible of a framework upon which to to build my faith with my knowledge base and so what kind of happened for me was i learned about evolution i was like oh well, this makes a lot of sense it's elegant it's uh it's it, it's logical it matches what i think i perceive in the world so i don't think i don't think i need a divine intervention to explain the diversity of life on earth. And so then I kept learning. And, I, and, and part of this is like, again, that paleontology background, I started taking geology classes because like a lot of people think, you know, Oh, well then where did life come from? How does life just appear? And the thing that people misunderstand in my experience is what I found people misunderstand is that the origin of life is actually not an evolutionary biology question because life doesn't, evolve until after it exists the origin of life is a different scientific process than the evolution of life once it's already there you kind of you got to fill the tank with gas before it can run you know what i mean (laughs) so (laughs) so i started you know because i was taking geology classes geology classes that's where the origin of life stuff starts happening it's this weird chemical interface where like once once chemistry gets sufficiently complex that chemicals start being able to copy, make copies of themselves, and those copies of themselves are passing on information from copy to copy, and that information gets warped over time because of uh, screw-ups in the chemistry, like, suddenly you got a thing that starts to look a little bit kind of like life. And if you've got, like, this substrate of clay that has, like, a slight electrostatic charge so it can keep everything kind of organized on this, this single two-dimensional surface, like, suddenly these things start emerging that look something like life, right? And we've got a fossil record of that. And we've got chemical theories about how that happened. And so, you know, I, I went from being like, okay, well, I don't need God to explain the diversity of life once life appears, but like maybe, maybe the origin of life is a place where God intervened. And the more I learned, the more I was like, this is truly an area where science doesn't have all the answers. People are still working on it. It's an open question. It's a cool problem, but I've learned enough to kind of trust the process. And I, again, like I'm losing I'm losing the moment where I need the divine to intercede to make a thing happen. So I was kind of like, oh, I don't think I need God for that either. I don't think I need God for the origin of life. So then I was like, oh, what about the origin of Earth? You know, and I, again, taking these geology classes, I start learning about the theories surrounding planetary formation. And and once you start learning that, you start getting into physics. And so, like, I'm, I'm kind of, like, working my way towards the more and more fundamental sciences, right? You start with biology, ecology, evolution. It's very messy. It's very complex, very chaotic. And then you get into chemistry. And chemistry is still very messy and chaotic, but it's a little less messy and chaotic than, like, biology. And then you get into geology and earth science. And, again, it's like I'm I'm drilling down towards more and more fundamental truths about the universe. And so, like, I get into the these 
theories about planetary formations. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? It kind of makes sense that like rocks would aggregate around a star and that a, a, a rock aggregation within this certain range from the star would have water at all three states of matter and energy gradients sufficient to move that energy through the water around the planet. And like, I kind of, again, like I've, I've lost the moment where I need God to intercede to create earth. What about creating the solar system? So then I started learning about stellar evolution and, and how stars have evolved throughout the history of the universe and how stars are formed and the, and the physics that goes into the, the birth of a, a nuclear fusion reactor in the, in the cosmos. And again, I lost that moment of the divine where I was like, well, I kind of now think that like, I don't need God to form a star. I don't need God to form a solar system. And then I expanded that out to galaxies and I expanded that out to finally, I got to the big bang, you know? And I was like, I don't think it wasn't that I didn't want it. It was that I didn't need it to explain the universe as I was experiencing it anymore. And that was when that moment where I went, when I was thinking about the big bang and thinking, you know, cause like in my mind I was like, well, maybe there's still like this ball of matter. That's all the matter in the universe. And maybe the big bang only happens because God flicks it, you know? And that's all that God ever did in the universe, but that was enough to be a part of it. But I just, by the time I got to that point, I couldn't, I couldn't feel it. I didn't have the emotional connection to that truth anymore. Mm. Mm -hmm. It was, it was sort of that moment. And this is like a series of moments that took months to years. You know, this is not a quick process of discovery. And the moment I realized that I didn't need God anymore, I couldn't keep my faith alive. There were too many cracks in the foundation. I'd had enough bad experiences with the religion side of faith, which I think we can treat as two distinct things. And it all, that was the moment where it kind of just fell apart for me. And I think the thing that I hear from people who still have their faith that drives me a little bananas is this idea that I don't have faith because I'm angry or because I don't want it. And I don't think that's true. I do get angry at organized religion because I think it causes a lot of harm in the world. I'll refer back to me almost getting duct taped to a cross, but it wasn't something I cast out of my life because I was angry at it in the moment. And when it happened emotionally for me at that time, the only close relative I'd lost was my paternal grandfather, uh, who was a man of deep, of deep faith. And, you know, when he died, when I was in high school, it was like the hardest I've ever cried in my entire life. Probably still to this day, just, just true, like wailing, sobbing. I mean, I think, it, you know, and I remember when it hit me that like, I don't think I believe in this anymore. I started to cry all over because it was like a second death for him because some part of me had been holding on to this idea that as long as I had some sliver of faith, then maybe there was a heaven and maybe I get to see my grandpa again. It's hard. It probably it's hard for me to talk about still to this day without getting emotional. And it really did feel like I, I had lost him all over again. Cause I was like, well now not only is he gone, but like there's no chance of ever reconnecting with him. And that sucks. And it broke my heart. And it, that's part of what makes me mad when uh, people who are, you know, evangelical in particular, because they have this, this proselytizing 
part of their faith structure talk to me like I don't care. Talk to me like I don't have any feeling left about the the faith that I had because it it really hurts <laughs> to to not have that not have that hope anymore. Right. Yeah, it it is a loss and like for when when you lose it uh, even even if it whether, you know, it's just shitty. I I just <laughs> it's it's totally true. Whenever someone belittles someone's loss of faith or faith transition or faith shift or whatever sort of language you want to put around it, it's an, it's incredibly shitty. So, I my hope is, is that you don't you haven't had that experience too often because it it is it is insulting like they're they're not respecting your prior experience well it's it and like it it feels like they're they're basically saying a faith journey only counts if it's moving in the direction of more faith and mm -hmm. like for them it's easy to and i'm generalizing which i apologize to the faithful listeners i'm sure you have out there but some some of the encounters i've had they, they seem to act like my faith journey counts because I'm moving in a direction of increasing faith and your faith journey doesn't count because you moved in a direction of decreasing faith. And I'm like, well, I kind of think those are two sides of the same coin. And like, we're all kind of always pendulum swinging between the, the two poles. And I find myself pretty far into my swing on the other side of things, but it wasn't, I think it, it wasn't a decision that I made lightly. And also it didn't feel like a decision. It felt like a resignation it felt like I succumbed to a new way of seeing things that wasn't something that I was looking for necessarily. I was certainly searching, but I wasn't looking for that particular outcome. And so that was the outcome I happened to get. And in a lot of ways it, it hurt, you know, I was heartbroken. Yeah. I think the fact that you had that, the way you tell the story, the, the fact that you had that level of like emotional significant, like such a emotionally processing at such a level that, is a sign that that this was a significant. It change. mattered. It mattered. Yeah. And so, and I, I, I totally, I, I, I am totally vibing with you, and very much agree with like the the idea that it's not a someone having a different destination uh, or a different type of experience is not. It, it shouldn't be a value judgment. I because I don't need, at this point and. This is just me sort of just talking out loud. I'm not or thinking out loud. I'm I'm not sure what necessarily the thing I struggle with lately is is that it seems that some people are keyed to be religious and some people are not. And I don't think that it's necessarily a binary thing, but I think it is a it is a, a spectrum. Like spectrums are are useful analogies these days for yeah, totally. Like for gender and sexuality, I think we should extend it to also include spirituality because I think there are some brains, some people who, some people who have traumatic experiences that cannot grok religion. And I think it goes the other direction too. People who have traumatic experiences and religion is their only way out. So, so like, but what, but to to ascribe a value judgment to that is, yeah, it, it's not respectful of just the. Of, of the complexity of our own individual stories. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that like, I always kind of tie things back to like this evolutionary perspective. And, and part of that is viewing everything as a spectrum. Like there's, there's a completely open question in biology and it is, 
one of the simplest concepts in biology that we do not have an answer for it. And it is what is a species really just like what's, what's, what is a species as a unit of understanding? Because like you can say that a horse and a donkey are separate species, but they can breed and produce offspring. That's a mule. Like, so are they the same species? Well, the mule is sterile. The mule can't have its own offspring. So it's a dead genetic line. Like it's a, so, you know, there's, there's, I tell, I tell, I tell people when I'm teaching biology, everything is fuzzy boundaries, right? And that's my way of saying it's a spectrum. Nothing is black and white. Everything's gray. If you think it's black and white, you probably don't understand the complexity of the system well enough to, to see the gray areas of gray in between. And that's, and that's true for, I mean, that's true for biological sex, which is something that, you know, is debate that occurs <laughs> in our society <laughs> currently. And I, I think it applies to, to everything else too. So yeah, I, I agree with your point about like the spectrum of religious affiliation. And the thing that like, the thing that I go back to often is I truly, truly did believe like I did. I did. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I've lost part of my brain because I can't cast my own mind back to a point in time where that belief was strong and stable and meant something to me. Cause I can't, I I, like, I feel like I can't, I feel like I have amnesia about Mm. what it felt like to be a faithful person in a way that's frustrating to me because like, I want to, as a scientist, I want to believe in the reliability of my own mind and my own senses, but like, I can't remember how I used to feel about something that was really important to me. Um, and like, I also, it also brings up these really weird philosophical questions of just like, I remember a, a debate that used to come up in the evangelical community that I was in a lot was just like, if somebody is saved, can they be unsaved? Right. Well, like I'm saved. Mm-hmm. I was baptized as a little baby and I definitely said the Lord's prayer many, many times and helped other people say it too. when I was, you know, more evangelical. And so like, is that undone? Am I unsaved now? Like from an evangelical perspective, am I going to hell or is the, is my salvation concrete and I'm okay? Like, and then it brings up these really horrific thought experiments where it's like, well, what, like if I'm wrong and, and the, the, the branch of evangelicalism that I was brought up in was right. Would it have been better if I died while I still believed, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Cause that way I at least get into heaven and maybe I don't get into heaven now. And like, that's kind of messed up. That feels like doesn't feel like a, a super fair system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that sort of stuff. And actually it's like on on the question of the assurance of salvation. See, you um, have all you like, have all the terms. You know all the Well, you know, I mean, you you rattled off all these all all these scientific terms that I have no reference for. So but I, know, I mean, but you're, so, you're a scholar of this stuff, and I really appreciate that about you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I don't know that I I get that title of, of scholar. I don't know if I've earned that, but but I appreciate it. The the different so within the within the theological traditions, there's there is uh, at least since Luther, say. Oh, you mean the speciation event? Because I couch <laughs> everything in terms of evolutionary biology. Yes. Yeah. So so basically, w- within the the meme of to use like Dawkins terms of uh, like oh, a, an idea you agree that, that guy's a jerk I hope he's not yeah <laughs> coming up next yes. week on exvangelical um. no 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 he's he, he is a new atheist bro and not not a he's not a great guy but he did popularize the idea of memes he did so anyways the going back to that 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 idea of being assured of your salvation on one side is the Wesleyan Arminian view which is that you can lose your salvation and then on on the other is calvinism which does believe depending upon how many 
you know, how many points you, whether you're a five point tulip Calvinist or some other, you know, variety believes that you cannot lose it, but it, they've also, they also extended that to double predestination, meaning that God pre-damned people and pre-saved people. Listen, Blake, then, I only came on the show for you to tell me whether I'm going to hell or not. This is what I'm here for. I you're not. To- I don't believe in hell. Any, I don't believe in hell, so no, you're not going to hell. Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll see you next week. Um, <laughs> so, so, no, you're not going to hell. And no one listening to this show is going to hell because it's not real. <laughs> um, it's also like even even biblically, it's only a place described for Satan and demons. Like it's never a place yeah. that's described as for, and for people. Even even play yeah, even references to like Abraham's bosom and all these other things. And yeah, just read first century first century Roman history and so understand. What Re- is Revelation going to happen when that. I die? No idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're. Actually, I loved one. Actually, to bring this back to iFanboy, one time I, they they I have no idea what episode this was. They were trying to think of a, a secular blessing, and it was may your ca- may your carbon not be preemptively released to the universe, mm. <laughs> which I which I thought was pretty pretty good for what I'm sure was probably an extemporaneous thing on. On their part. <laughs> I, I always thought the, um, my favorite secular, like, affirmation, I guess, for, to, to put it in the sort of context of that was, um, I always liked the Irish blessing of, like, may the road rise to meet you, may the wind always be at your back, may the sun shine warm on your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. Like, I always thought that was a really good secular, and I think even in, within that blessing, it says, like, you know, God bless you and stuff like that, but people typically, you know, the wind may the wind always be at your back. I was as a person who likes to go on a hike. That's a, that's yeah. a nice one for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I appreciate you hanging with me for as long as you have. For uh, sure, for the this listeners. Been, um, this is this is therapeutic. <laughs> like I was, like I wasn't. I was only half. I think I said I was kidding at the beginning of the interview about being terrified, but now I'll say that I was only half kidding because, like, it's. <laughs> it, I knew. I knew you were going to get at some, some stuff, some emotional stuff, you know, and that's like, it's, it's a little, it, it can be intimidating to like sit down and have a conversation with a person that you know is going to like dig in and and not that you're like a gotcha or hard interviewer, but like, I knew you were going to ask me questions that I was going to try to answer honestly. And that honesty was going to dredge up some emotions that I, 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 I still feel pretty strongly even just remembering them. So, right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's the, that's why I I try to conduct the interviews the way I do, which is just that trying to be pretty pretty loose with with what we talk about and also asking open-ended questions because I'm not sure and I want to be sensitive to people that are willing to be vulnerable, especially in like a pu- public way cuz can I tell you my um, plan? I have a plan. Okay, what's your plan? <laughs> I've told this to I've told this to friends, but I haven't I haven't said this publicly before. I've gotten into D&D as many Many nerds have never played it growing up because I never had friends who wanted to play it with me. I think I would have been super into it as a kid. I just didn't have that that type of group of friends. I had great friends growing up, but just not mm-hmm. tabletop role playing friends. But my my lab mate in grad school, you know, just decided one day he's like, I want to be a dungeon master. Like, Ryan, you're going to be in my campaign. I was like, OK. And then he like explained to me creating a character. And I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> It's like, it's like Skyrim meets whose line is it anyway? I'm in love. Um, <laughs> so here's my plan. Cause I, cause I mentioned that like, I can't remember what it felt like. Uh huh. 
and I'm enough into D&D, and I'm enough into the idea of actually playing the character, and I have enough of a theater background that, like, I don't think I'm a great actor, but I, I, I think I'm an okay performer, and I think, like, I have some faculty at, at acting and embodying a character. And I used to always, your listeners will be shocked to learn that I always got cast as the comic relief, right? I was always the guy cracking jokes. <laughs> Except when my school did The Crucible, right? A play very much about religious tolerance or lack thereof. It's also probably and the since, story. Go ahead. And sincerity. Also and sincerity. just about the sincerity of faith and all that fun stuff. But also possibly a mass psychosis caused by sp- fungal spores on rye bread. Have you looked into that? <laughs> no. Look no. into it. It's entirely possible <laughs> that that entire town was undergoing a mass hallucination. It's, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. So anyway, I was, ju- I was Judge Danforth in that play. Not a comic relief character. A very stern, angry man and it's like the one time in my in my acting career scare quotes for days that I actually had to like get into character you know and I actually like did like there were times where like I couldn't easily distinguish between myself and Judge Danforth in ways that have stuck with me so my idea my plan I'm gonna create a cleric I'm gonna create a super sincere cleric and clerics for people who don't play D&D are uh, characters who are part of a religious order and they are able to use magic, but their magic comes from their devotion to their God or their deity. I'm going to try to create a cleric and see if I can act it well enough to get back into the headspace to remember what it felt like to have faith. Is that insane? I think that's fascinating. No, I think that like, I mean, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. Like just in the, the way in which as, as far as like play acting a role can have an um, sort of embodiment type of effect as you said uh, i've i've never been a good actor or anything like that i don't know that this is gonna work i'm my biggest but, i mean I, yeah I, I, there is like an element maybe you know it it may not even necessarily mean that there's a very very it seems like there's going to be a very small percent uh possibility of you like changing your belief but it could get you back in the headspace right i mean my um, fear in a way, I, I have you know i have two fears one fear is that like, well, this is not less of a fear, more of like a, a what will probably happen. What will probably happen is I'll start playing this cleric and the story arc of this cleric will immediately become how he loses he or she. Because that's one of the cool things about D&D is like you don't have to play. You literally don't have to play any aspect of yourself. So like I might even make this character a woman, but I also at the same time, I think this character needs to have enough of me that 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 I can embody that a little more fully. But like I, I, at some some point, I'm going to create a female character, too, and I'm really looking forward to that. So I think that'll be interesting to explore, but like, I'm worried that it'll immediately become a, a narrative of like, this is how this guy loses his faith because that's the narrative that I can remember and feel acutely. And like the idea of finding and deepening a faith is the part that now feels foreign, even though it was super important to me for a huge chunk of my life. So I've, I, I got to figure out how to create a character that is. I think there's like that sincerity component. I have to figure out a way to play act the sincerity that I don't actually feel anymore, but I need to embody enough to like remember. Do you think you will have to make that character like a, um, like a rigid type of character or do you think you will try to give the character more of a flexible type of framework with which like, are you wanting this person to be a fundamentalist sort of, or inherit fundamentalist beliefs? Probably um, not, just because that was never, well, to, to the extent that I can remember my own narrative, that was never me. So I don't think I need that to remember the feeling of deep faith and uh, 
true belief that I felt. I don't think I don't think that that's necessary for that character. I could definitely see me building a character who like the other thing about D&D is like every character you build they're they have to be somewhat of an outcast because like there's a reason they're out in the world adventuring rather than just like living in a monastery, right? <laughs> so I could totally see this character as somebody who has escaped a really rigid system and like still believes and wants to do good in the world and didn't feel like that good was happening behind the walls of the the monastic order they were a member of. Maybe that's why maybe that's why this particular cleric is out there trying to do do the good work. I don't know. Yeah. On a total total random thing as well was have you ever um, heard of, I think it's Stephen Jay Gould, who I think, was he an anthropologist? I can't remember. He was a paleontologist. Um, a paleontologist. I, he's, okay. he's actually in my academic lineage. So Paul Cotter, I mentioned, who was my, well, okay, so my PhD advisor was a guy named Mark Clements. His PhD advisor was Paul Koch. So a little bit of a incestuous cir- circle there of going from undergrad to PhD. Paul Koch's PhD advisor was Dan Fisher. Dan Fisher was a student of Stephen Jay Gould. So I'm a, mm. I'm in the direct line lineage of Stephen Jay Gould. Oh, that's, speaking. that's awesome. I remember reading a, uh, an essay by him called about non non overlapping magisterium. That was and his he, whole thing. Yep. Yeah. Which was all about the way he reconciled. Well, actually like scientists that he knew were also devout people. Yeah. Which I thought was, was fascinating. And that's and then, sort of, that was what Philip Pullman incorporated into the golden compass series oh fair, is that right fair bit yes yeah, my, my understanding I'll, i was a little i was a little too i was still a little too christiany too too evangelical in particular when i when i read <laughs> when i read the golden compass i need to go back because i think i would vibe with it way more now but i think the fact that it the second the second chapter becomes anti-theist mm. in a lot more explicit way not the second chapter the second book of the becomes, golden Compass yeah yeah becomes much more explicitly anti-theist, I think, which I wasn't. I wasn't there yet, and I'm not necessarily anti-theist, but it was. It was just overbearing. <laughs> let me ra- let me wrap my my myself up here with one point that I was actually thinking about. I was like, oh, make sure you say this to Blake when you're talking, and it only now came up as we as we wind things down. So um, I'll say this, and then I'll, I'll happily take my leave. There's a a thing about you. You mentioned like philosophy at one point and I didn't really get into philosophy until after I'd already lost my faith and a lot of what I got into from the philosophical world was the philosophy of science because there's a lot to be learned from like how does science actually uncover new knowledge in a way that is distinct from a religious theology right like they're 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 people will say that they're two different ways of uh, ascertaining the truth but like they're not just different in their outcome they're also different in their methodology and so one of the things that's really important about science is the idea of methodological naturalism. And what that means is when you're doing science, if you're doing science properly, and this is where people who promote ideas like creationism, intelligent design, and, and a lot of like fringy, you know, cryptozoology, Bigfoot type people fall flat, is methodological naturalism. Basically, you have to operate under the assumption that there is nothing outside the physical universe. So everything that's happening that is observable is explicable, can be explained by what we know about what we know about and can observe about the natural universe within the bounds of the universe. You cannot invoke the supernatural. And that's methodological naturalism because that's the method by which you do science. Being a scientist does not require you to believe that. You are allowed to have other beliefs. You just have to you just have to use the method. 
So it's it's sort of it's sort of like if you're if you're baking a cake and you're like, I believe I can bake this cake at 200 degrees, but the method says I have to bake it at 425. Like if you want to do science properly, you have to follow the method. You can't you can't invoke your own beliefs as a, an explanation. Most scientists, myself included at this point in my life, are philosophical naturalists where we also happen to believe that everything that exists is within the natural universe and there isn't a supernatural that exists outside the universe. Mm -hmm. But a point I like to make often when I'm talking about these things is like to do good science and to believe in science, you don't have to be a philosophical naturalist. You all you have to accept is methodological naturalism. So philosophically it is perfectly possible to, to appreciate science, to respect the way that science is done to respect the work that scientists do and still be a person of faith and still be a person of deep belief. Those are completely compatible. And, and there are even scientists who, who, who reconcile that, that potential incompatibility within their own belief system. So I just, something I like to explain to people because I think it, I don't know. I, I just, I hope it eases the tension between those of deep faith and those who want to, you know, follow science and the scientific method. And I think it's, right. a, it's the way by which I, try to to circle the square and making it so that everyone can can get something uh, out of what they need especially like the benefits that science provides to us all things like cell phones and vaccines not to be <laughs> controversial uh, but like you know this like, is a pro-vax yeah, yeah, podcast. yeah um so so i just kind of wanted to end on that that idea that like there's a way you do science and you can accept the findings of science and you can still find space in your mental landscape to believe something other than that while not rejecting what science tells us about the world or the universe. Mm -hmm. so. Right. Yeah. That's a great way to frame it because I'm, I mean, that is something that, that people of faith or, or even just people, I don't know, dealing with misinformation <laughs> have to deal with now. So that's a, that's a great note to, to wrap up our conversation on. I really appreciate you reaching out. I've all, I've already mentioned a few times. I've loved listening to you over the years on iFanboy when you, when you pop in as a guest host or as part of the, what's the animated brain trust yes. <laughs> and, and other spots when, when you fill in, it's always great to listen to you and, Thank you for sharing a bit about your more personal story. I'm sure that uh, it'll, uh, there will be people out there who can definitely relate. So, Yeah, thanks. I mean, thank you so much for having me. Um, if folks want to learn a little bit more about me, you can check out my very outdated website at ryanhaupt.com. But I'm on Twitter at Haupt, just my last name, H-A-U-P-T. That's uh, H P is in Paul, T is in Tom, as my mom likes to say. Um, <laughs> uh, I also like to joke that I got on Twitter early enough that there is a men's clothing brand in Germany that is like called like Haupt shirts or something like that. And I got the I got the handle before they did. So every once in a while, I get a, I get a tweet from somebody telling me they're heading out to the club and they're Haupt and they're looking great. And I'm like, good for you, buddy. Appreciate Good. You. <laughs> it's the only only shirt on this earth that I wouldn't have to get monographed because it's already got my name on it. <laughs> Monograph, monogram. I don't know what the word is. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I I've said it a couple of times. I want to reiterate, like for folks who listen to the show because who don't necessarily come from an evangelical background, like I want I want everyone to appreciate the courage that Blake demonstrates by doing this show because it is not nothing to like get on a microphone and look at that red recording light staring you in the face and say the things that he says about 
faith and the problems with it and the problems with the evangelical community like there are a lot of people out there who can get very mad about this stuff and so it is not nothing for you to be doing the work you're doing and i really appreciate it uh thank you very much i I do appreciate that thank you thanks for talking to me tonight this has been this has been a lot of fun my pleasure